This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. It is Tuesday, October 25th, and boy, oh boy, have we got a show for you. We have some amazing guests coming on the show this morning, including uh, Dr. Richard English, who's going to be talking to us about terrorism and does it work. Uh, We're also going to be speaking with the co-creator, star of, and producer of uh, BYU TV's hit show, Studio C. Have you heard of that show? Yeah? Okay. And then uh, our final interview of the morning is going to be with our health evangelist, Ron Hager. We're always uh, glad to have him back in the studio. So as I mentioned, it's October 25th. Terry, did you know? Well, you probably do know because you put this together. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Matt is, does that every day. Did you know? Like, yeah. I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> it is Punk for a Day Day. Hmm. Are you a fan of the Ramones? Honestly, no. No. But so, I can't say I honestly like pursued their music, so are you, I, are I'm you a, a fan of any punk music? Probably by default. Not default. Probably just because I heard a song and liked it, not necessarily that I know it's punk. Okay, so it, it doesn't cover a whole genre. There just are maybe some specific uh, yeah, I like songs this that you song like. like this one, but I couldn't okay. tell you what was punk and what wasn't. Judy is a punk from the Ramones? No. No, not a fan. No. Okay. There, there is a couple Ramones songs I do, do believe I have, but really, I can't tell you what they are. Huh. I, I've just seen the name on my computer a couple times. Yeah. Uh, it's also World Pasta Day. Mm. World Pasta Day was brought into existence as part of the World Pasta Congress on the 25th of October 1995. The go. World Pasta Congress. Yes. I didn't even know that existed. It is a uh, collaboration of pasta makers as they try to uh, solidify their markets on pasta. Okay. Uh, store-bought plastic bag pasta or homemade pasta? Which one are you going with? Have you made? Have you no. done homemade pasta? No. No. Okay. There's there's too much prep time there. Reed is salivating over here. He loves pasta. No. Oh, he does love pasta. pasta. Okay, good, good. Yeah. It is also sourest day. Like maybe the sourest day of the year. Hmm. Uh, sourest day was established to celebrate all the sour things in the world. And while sour attitudes are included in this, sour foods have got to be one of our favorite things. And believe us when we say there are more than a few different options when it comes to sour foods. What's the sourest food you've ever had? I usually stay away from sour. Yeah? It's more of a like a candy yeah. type thing. And then it's just for a moment. Yeah. Like the atomic warhead, yeah. you ever have one of those? That's one of those. That's one of those foods where you eat as a kid and you think it's the coolest thing, yeah. and then you get older and you think to yourself, "Why did I ever do that to myself?" Right, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, it is also Game One of the World Series, and even though my Los Angeles Dodgers didn't make the cut, there are two teams in this World Series that I think a lot of people would love to see win. We've got the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs, neither of which has won the World Series in a very, very long time. But uh, I'm going to get Terry's uh, take on the ticket prices here in a minute. But the first thing we want to do is we want to make sure that we go over to Sadie Nielsen in the newsroom. Sadie, what's going on around the country? 
With two weeks to go until the election, a new CNN ORC poll released Monday shows Hillary Clinton leading Donald Trump by five points. Among likely voters, Clinton is ahead with 49 percent compared to Trump's 44 percent, followed by Libertarian Gary Johnson with 3 percent and the Green Party's Jill Stein's with 2 percent. When the third party candidates are removed, Clinton's margin increases to 51 percent to Trump's 45 percent. Donald Trump's campaign went live on Facebook on Monday night in what will be the first of two weeks of live shows to encourage supporters. Trump's Facebook page called it nightly campaign coverage from Trump Tower. Observers immediately wondered if it was a prototype of a theoretical post-election Trump TV network. The Trump campaign denied that. The stream averaged 40,000 to 60,000 viewers on Facebook in the first half hour, which is high by Facebook Live standards but very low by TV rating standards. A retired State Department Information of Technology official, John Bentle, asserted his Fifth Amendment rights more than 90 times during a deposition Monday in a civil lawsuit related to Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, according to the conservative group Judicial Watch that brought the litigation. And finally, in your Halloween news. Yes, thank you. (sighs) Well, I'm just going to just tell it to you because... Uh, Terry would approve of it. I don't. Worried that your kids aren't getting their five fruits and veggies a day, especially during Halloween time? Well, a chocolatier named Andy Simpson is coating Brussels sprouts in Belgium chocolate and selling them for about 30 cents. (laughs) I would eat that. I would try that. No, no. Brussels sprouts. I like Brussels sprouts. They're no, like no, no, they're no. like little brains. They're disgusting. He posted on Instagram a picture of the sneaky vegetable covered in chocolate. The sneaky vegetable? It is sneaky. <laughs> okay. And said Does it'll it roll s- off the table or something. <laughs> it'll soon be Halloween time, so prepare some yummy cheats for the neighborhood kids. Try dipping Brussels sprouts in chocolate for them. Oh, they hate you. You just you're giving them vegetables. I think that's more of a trick than a treat. Yeah, give them a, give them a pencil. Maybe you know, the same same reaction. I, I'll kind of take the middle ground here, but I would probably side a little more with Sadie. I, I think as a parent, my first inclination is to think, "Oh, these kids are eating way too much candy." But then mm-hmm. I think, you know, when I was a kid, I probably ate a lot more candy than they did, and yep. nobody batted an eye. Right. You know, interesting. Sadie, would you try a chocolate covered Brussels sprout? No. 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 A chocolate covered carrot. Maybe I do like carrots better. Hmm. Because you can put like carrots in carrot cake. That makes more sense. Like, would you ever have a Brussels sprout cake? Never. Never. Maybe in Brussels. Maybe in Brussels. I would try maybe like a chocolate covered lima bean. Or is that just going way off the deep end? It's a little off the okay. deep end. You know, another another beef I have with with Halloween candy is they seem to be getting smaller and smaller, and yet those are the ones that they call the fun size. And Absolutely. as a kid, you think, gosh, this would be a lot more fun if it was a lot bigger than this. It's true. <laughs> Sadie, favorite Halloween candy? Oh, you know, I really like milk duds. People really don't like them, but I like how they last forever. You know who else really loves milk duds? Who? Dentists. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of the dentist, I got to go soon. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right, so we'll come back tomorrow with you, and you'll uh, uh, be knocked up with Novocaine, and we'll, we'll try to decipher what you're what you're saying. We'll try. It'll okay. be great. Great. Sadie, thank you as always. Great job. You knocked it out of the park. So there are some things going on in the, in the political world, it looks like, Terry. Not really. <laughs> but they said some funny things yesterday. Okay. So which of these clips do we have to get to? So Trump was in... 
Florida because he's trying to shore up and hold on to Florida. He must win Florida or bo- this doesn't work. They're both in Florida, right? Today. Okay. But yesterday, Clinton, yeah. Clinton was in Massachusetts. Okay. She's actually doing a whole different approach to this last two weeks. We'll get to that in a second. So play, uh, play clip one. When the polls are even, when they leave them alone and do them properly, I'm leading. But you see these polls where they're polling Democrats. How's Trump doing? Oh, he's down. They're polling Democrats. The system is corrupt and it's rigged and it's broken. And we're going to change it. So he said this before. If the, tr- if the poll is for me, it's a good poll. If it's <laughs> against me, it's a bad poll. Yeah. He, he's trying to use some emails from the WikiLeaks. Okay. It's, it's come out that kind of talked about Democrat pollsters and some of the things they're doing to look at some polls. And he tries to attach it to the Hillary campaign. But the problem is those would be internal polls that they're using on how the Democrat uh, campaign would adjust their message. Yeah. Not something that's going to get out to the public to where it looks like, okay, this is how the, the presidential uh, election is going. You know, it wouldn't be one of those polls. It's a poll that the Clinton campaign within themselves looks at. It isn't a public poll, but he's trying yeah. to say it's a public poll. They're manipulating things. and So it's, they've, they've misconstrued an email in these thousands of emails that come out every day. And he's and, basically stating the obvious, too. Like, well, if you look at the Republican polls, I'm doing quite well. If right. you look at the uh, – that's that's true on either side. Now, yeah. And so it's <laughs> it's just interesting. He's in Florida. He's trying to – to. I think he's got seven stops either today or over the next couple of days where he's just trying to keep the enthusiasm going for his, his campaign as it's uh, coming down the last couple of weeks here. As I said, Hillary Clinton was in Massachusetts. She's actually going around, and she was in North Carolina the other day, and now she was in Massachusetts, and she's campaigning for governors and senators who are, uh, who are running, and Democrat, obviously. She's campaigning for them so that down ballot they can have you know, that support locally. Because she's already, she's already calling it. She's Basically, yeah. well, sort of. She's not, <laughs> but like it seems like her campaign's like, okay, we're done. I'm just going to help everybody else yeah. now, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So she brought out Elizabeth Warren, and she had some things to say. We'll clip three there. Get this, Donald. Nasty women are tough. Nasty women are smart, and nasty women vote. And she went on a nasty women kind of. She continued this thought in clip. What is that? Clip four. Go clip four there. And on November 8th, we nasty women are going to march our nasty feet to cast our nasty votes to get you out of our lives forever. So there you go. So Hillary Clinton wants every vote. She wants she wants uh, even the votes of the nasty women. Yes. uh, (laughs) I I would be surprised if you can't go to her website and there are T-shirts ready to go. Isn't that isn't that uh, isn't that something they poked fun at on the Saturday Night Live debate? Yeah, she, she stood up, up with the... branded content already. As he said it, she already had it ready to go because that's, that's how great. this works. Now, Clinton was – she spoke on her airplane as she's been doing. Remember there was a whole time where she wasn't doing press conferences. She wasn't talking to anybody and then all of a sudden she did like four or five in a row right on the airplane. So all the sound bites had that loud hum yeah, in the background. You heard yeah. the engines in the yeah. background. Go with clip uh, five there. You know, I, I'm a little superstitious about that. We've got a transition operation going. Um, and I haven't uh, really paid much attention to it yet because I want to focus on what our first task is, and that is convincing uh, as many Americans as possible to give us the chance to serve. 
So I'm sorry. What was she saying she was superstitious about? About what we were just talking about, the idea that uh, she's got this thing tied up. She's uh. she's already won, that the election's over. She's, mm. she, she is not saying that, but everything they're doing as a campaign is basically saying that. So it's she- kind of an interesting uh, – Situation. She's, so she says that, but you you got to think that there's some sort of celebration song going on in her mind constantly. Uh, probably. But I think she also <laughs> has some fear. I mean, look at what Trump has done. All, all along the way that through the primaries, point. they're saying there's no way this can happen. And he kept just knocking off you know opponents left and right. And then he wins the primary. You know, yeah. He's not supposed to do this, and he did it. And so now the question is, Trump keeps talking about there is a silent majority, a silent, not majority, but a silent group of people out there who are not saying they're going to vote for Trump, but will actually go vote for Trump. Like when a, pollster, a pollster calls or a friend comes by and says who you're going to vote for, they won't say Trump because they're kind of embarrassed for whatever reason, but they're going to vote for Trump. So supposedly there are some closeted Trump supporters out there that, yeah. And that could track because there's a whole group of people now that are backing Trump who haven't really participated in past elections. Yeah. Because he represents the anger they have. He represents Mm -hmm. the, you know, he's he's giving voice to this, this, this group of people who Maybe they're they're down on their luck. They don't have a job. That they feel like they've been abandoned by by the government, and they feel like Trump is the answer. No candidate has has given them voice before, and that's who's kind of fueling Donald Trump's campaign at the moment. Do you think uh, Bernie Sanders supporters are going to support Trump? I think that's a stretch. I think there's there's really? too much. You know, you're looking at. Uh, just different policies and stuff that Bernie Sanders wanted that is nothing of what Trump is talking about. Hmm. Now, are they, do they hate Hillary Clinton enough to vote for Trump? I don't know. They could. Stranger things have happened, but I don't know. Speaking of strange things, so I think everybody could agree that Donald Trump's behavior has been a little strange. What does uh, – we've got a clip here that yeah. talks about what uh, President Obama thinks of President of Obama behavior. was on Jimmy Kimmel last night. Mm-hmm. Kimmel asked him – um, something about like, would you want to run? Would you like to run against Donald Trump? And he, you know, stayed away from that and kind of answered this way. Look, I ran against John McCain. I ran against Mitt Romney. Obviously, I thought that I could do a better job, but they're both honorable men. And if they had won, then I wouldn't worry about the general course of this country. I, I think Republicans and Democrats have some fierce disagreements, and that's how democracy works. We're a big, diverse country, and. Sometimes it's going to be contentious. Regardless of what your political preferences are, there is a certain responsibility and expectation in terms of how you, you behave, how you present yourself. It doesn't mean that... I've heard this speech before, well, believe me. It, uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. No, I didn't I, mean from you. I meant by guidance counselors to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, so there you go. Nice. Wow, that was that was pretty humble of President Obama too to admit that, you know, these there's nothing wrong with these guys. They're honorable men. I would have supported them and, you know, they wouldn't have steered us too far off the course anyway. Or at least there there is question on whether Trump can act in an administrative way in the office. Can he function in the office as president? He can go do whatever he wants, but there's some realities when you get in there, you just can't run roughshod over Congress. Congress is going to be the thing that stops you from, you know, meeting most of your plans that you have for your administration. How is how would he deal with that sort of thing? I mean, yeah, 
And then he's talking about like you know suing members of the media and going after people. And you're like, well, usually putting you, Hillary in jail. Yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff. And it's like it doesn't. It, you can't. There's certain things you can't do as president because it's not within your your power to do so. But he he kind of puts it out there that he can do almost whatever he wants once he's president. Right? So it's kind of like uh, running for senior class president. Yeah, we're gonna put vending machines. Yeah, you promise you, you promise Twinkies room. for lunch every day. That's something you can't do, but you make the promise. Yeah, I don't know. Well, you know, as you've heard him say, he's he's got one of the best temperaments. So interesting stuff. Well, we haven't been. This isn't a good segue, but uh, we're gonna be talking about terrorism when we come back with Dr. Richard English who is a pro-vice-chancellor for internationalization and engagement at Queen's University Belfast. And uh, he's going to be talking to us a little bit more about whether or not terrorism works. Hmm. Really, really interesting topic. When we come back, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are uh, still waiting for Dr. English to be on the line, but uh, we are going to cover a couple of stories here while we wait for that to happen. Um, Sadie, do you happen to know if there's any more clown news? (laughs) You know, I haven't heard anything crazy lately, um, but I know that they're still arresting like tons of clowns. Like, and it just is crazy to me that people are not saying, wow, maybe I shouldn't wear clown mask around anymore. Like, maybe I should wear something else or just not do it altogether. Well, but then that's, that's clown discrimination, isn't it? Is it? L- listen to this. So a small sign put up as a joke in the City Lights bookshop in London, Ontario, sparked a three-ring circus of two angry clowns, two frustrated bookstore employees, and two bicycle-riding police officers. The sign, a clown face with a diagonal bar across it. In other words, no clowns allowed. The sign has been in the store for years. With all the fuss over creepy clowns lately, store co-owner... Uh, the store co-owner said she put it up as a joke. Professional clown Buttons Blamo, Brian Curry in his non-clown life, didn't find it funny and vowed he wouldn't stand for it, even in his oversized shoes. Mm. Accompanied by Lulu Pulitzer Palooza, uh, Lori Ackerman in non-clown life, Blamo showed up at the store with a fat green marker and began writing on the store window, I asked your owner to take this down this racist sign, Blamo said. It's not racist, the actual owner said. Yeah, it doesn't race have to do with – racist has to do with race, right? Is, it, <laughs> is a clown a race now? Uh, apparently. Huh. Uh, but Blamo insists that it's offensive and the owner insists that it's a joke. Police managed to defuse the situation for at least now. Uh, Blamo vows he will protest again. The owner says she won't be intimidated by a couple of clowns to take down the sign. Wow. You bring up a good point, though. Is that racism? I mean, <laughs> I guess they wear they wear a white face in their costume. I, yeah. So interesting. So do you know, is there anybody in your neighborhood or in your circle of friends that is dressing up like a clown? 
I don't think so. And I think it's because of the fear that you're probably going to get arrested on Halloween just because you decided to wear a clown mask. So Interesting. You know, we just had a, a church function where um, people dressed up in their costumes, obviously, and it was a chili cook-off and a trunk or treat. Mm-hmm. And usually for those types of events, they'll say, don't wear any masks. Right. Which is understandable because you want to make sure that, uh, you know— you want to know who's there and not just have some And usually random... it's the little kids running around, so right, you don't want right. to scare them. Um, but uh, I don't remember them saying no clowns this year, hmm. but I don't recall seeing any clowns. Well, you can either face paint your face or you can wear a mask. And the thing is, masks can be – or face painting can be just as scary as clown masks sometimes, so – might as well ban face paint, too, because it's all the same thing. Uh, Terry was telling me that they just had their little get-together, trunk or tree, mm-hmm. I think is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, his son wanted to be Batman, but he couldn't wear his Batman no masks. No masks. So yeah. What did he's they... just Bruce Wayne then. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> he didn't like that, though, apparently. <laughs> so Not as cool with the kids. Right. You know, speaking of signs, here's another story. Uh, A 24-year-old Portland woman was issued a summons Thursday night after a patrol officer caught her with several Trump campaign signs in her car and one in her hand, a police department official said. The police said that the incident happened shortly after 10.30 p.m. last week. The signs were on public property. He said that the woman stated she was upset with Trump. When asked why she had the signs uh, and taking, defacing or disturbing signs bearing political messages relating to a general or primary election or a referendum is a civil violation in May. Those who do so face a fine of up to $250. Oh, shoot. Per sign or just in general? You know, I'm not sure. It should be per sign. It should be per sign. Yeah. I'd probably like that better. Why is it that everyone takes Trump signs but no one takes Hillary Clinton signs? That is a good a good point. Why? Why? I feel like I've heard all these stories about people taking Donald Trump signs, but no one takes Hillary Clinton signs. You know, I'm not sure. I, I think I told a story before where we had a, well, I won't get into that, but um, in high school, uh, when I was running for different elections, you know, assemblies or announcements, right? Um, I would put up signs and, you know, I'd always try to put them in places where nobody could reach them. That's the smart thing to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll take a break. And uh, we'll come back and and continue the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, This is Jeff Simpson covering for Matt while he is away in beautiful Costa Rica. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We have on the line here uh, Dr. Richard English, who is uh, going to be speaking to us a little bit more about terrorism and whether or not it is effective. Uh, Professor Richard English is the author of the book, Does Terrorism Work? A History. Uh, Professor English, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Jeff. So I, uh, I spent a little time reading about your book and, and some articles that have been written about your book. So just right off the bat, what constitutes terrorism, and how, how do you define terrorism? It's a question which is impossible to answer to everybody's satisfaction, but my definition of it is 
violence which has a political purpose, which is deliberately using a kind of psychological mechanism in terms of producing a certain effect. So some people would use it only to refer to what non-state groups would do, and that's what this book is about, Does Terrorism Work? But I myself think that it might be something which states sometimes use. So the Hitler regime in Nazi Germany seems to me to use terrorism. The difficulty is that talking about what states do and what non-state groups do involves different dynamics. So this book focuses on politically motivated violence, which has a deliberate effect of trying to produce its change of opinion through the psychological mechanism of terror. Excellent. Thank you. So, you know, obviously we have some pretty major examples of terrorism uh, in the last couple of decades, obviously 9-11, and then uh, more recently at the nightclub in Orlando, Florida, which was the biggest attack to happen on American soil since 9-11. In your opinion, and I know that this is what your book goes into, and it's, it's a huge, huge question, but does terrorism work? I suppose what I'm trying to do in the book is to to look as calmly as we can at this question and rather than jumping to one quick answer or another to look at it in the way that would be as dispassionate uh, as is possible. And I would argue that it's more common for terrorism to work in what I'd call tactical ways, getting publicity, for example, or undermining your opponents, than it is for terrorism to work in what I'd call strategic ways, which is trying to bring about the headline goals or headline objectives that your movement wants to produce. So if you think of the 9-11 atrocity from 2001, it seems to me at a tactical level in terms of the operation, it was tragically very successful in that it gained publicity, the operation broadly worked in terms of what was attended and so forth. But it didn't work in a strategic way in that Al-Qaeda didn't manage to destroy the United States or its influence internationally. It didn't manage to destroy the regimes in the Middle East, which it disapproved of. So I think quite often you find a pattern where terrorism is more likely to work at a tactical level than it is in terms of its strategic outcomes. And I think, for example, the Orlando attack that you talk about, or San Bernardino would be another example. They achieved the tactical objective of publicity, but they won't achieve a headline goal in terms of strategic effectiveness, I think. Thank you. Um, So if these groups are not accomplishing their their political objectives, then why why are they continuing to use uh, terroristic means? That's the really big question which lies behind the book, because terrorism obviously has gone on for decades and decades and decades, and yet most analyses would say that it doesn't, for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, it doesn't produce the headline goals that it's pursuing. My argument in this book is that, in a way, terrorism is like many other kinds of activity that humans engage in, in that strategic victory is very rare. Full strategic victory is rare for businesses, it's rare for football teams, it's rare for universities. But tactical successes or diluted versions of your strategic goals are much more common. And something else that I point out in the book is there are what I would call the inherent rewards of being involved in terrorist groups themselves. So you might not achieve, if you're in Hamas, you might not achieve the destruction of the state of Israel, and I don't think that they will, but you might have some sense of being involved in a righteous struggle. You might have some sense of gaining revenge on your enemies. You might have some sense of the psychological rewards of being involved in intense comradeship 
relationship with the people who are in your organization. So just as you might get people being involved in various kinds of career where you think, why on earth are they still doing this? They're not going to get the kind of uh, market success that their business wants or the kind of success that their firm wants, but they still carry on doing it for other kinds of lower rewards. I think so too with terrorism. You can get comradeship, you can get excitement, you can get exhilaration. For some people, you can get money. And those sorts of things are part of the part of the motivation as well. So I suppose the conclusion of the book partly is that however strange it is to say it, terrorists turn out to be quite normal. Interesting. So how difficult is it for these leaders of these terrorist groups to recruit people to their cause and to, to get them to think about these uh, some of these rewards that you just mentioned? It's a really good point. I mean, I, I remember one of the interviewees I had from the I, Irish Republican Army here in Belfast saying to me, he said, you've got to remember, Richard, how difficult it is to run an organization like this, because you've got to not just recruit people, but keep them in the movement for year after year, decade after decade sometimes. I mean, a group like Al-Qaeda, despite all of the enemies that it faces, has been going now for nearly three decades. I think two main things sustain them. One is that once you get conflicts up and running, you often get a kind of tit-for-tat violence which is self-sustaining. So one side will use violence against the other. There'll be a reaction which causes more pain on the other side. And there's a kind of back and forward which keeps the struggle going, even if it's not achieving that much. I think the second thing is that a lot of the time, people people delude themselves about the kind of things which human activity might achieve. So I think we're all guilty of this, mostly in non-violent terms, but quite often people who think that a particular politician is going to yield a particular set of changes in a country, when we look at it calmly, we might think it's not likely to happen, but people will still vote for them. People will still get involved in campaigning for them. And so in that sense, I suspect that some element of sustaining an exaggerated confidence in what we can achieve is part of the story as well. So, uh, Professor uh, English, you've obviously written a book, and we're talking a little bit about some of the things that you've written in there. Uh, Does terrorism work a history? And uh, I I, I see here that uh, Thomas Nagel, who wrote a review of your book in the London Review of Books, describes uh, a process that you use in the book as sort of a report card on whether or not these uh, terrorist groups that you've studied have achieved their objectives. Can you tell us more about that report card, as, as Thomas Nagel has coined it? What, what, what I do is I try and set out the different layers at which I think terrorism can work. So I've mentioned strategic success, but I also think that you might get partial strategic success, say, in terms of getting secondary goals. You might have a primary goal, but then you might have secondary goals for your movement as well. And then I think there's a tactical level, and then I think there's the inherent rewards level. So there's four different levels of success you can get. What I do in the book is I have four case study chapters, one on Al-Qaeda, one on Hamas, one on the Basque group, ETA, in Spain, and one on the IRA. And then in the conclusion, I go through another 50 groups and try and look at what they've achieved as well. And in each case, I try calmly to go through saying, if we ask about their strategy or about their secondary goals or about their tactics or about their inherent rewards, what does the kind of, as Professor Nagel put it, what does the report card look like? Now, in each of those four groups, you get a similar kind of pattern. At the top level, they didn't achieve their strategic goals. ETA didn't get a fully independent Basque state, for 
for example, Al-Qaeda didn't get the destruction of the United States and its influence. But at the diluted level of that, or a secondary reward in terms of revenge, for example, or sustaining resistance, they did. In terms of tactical levels, there was a mixed picture, but they got a lot of tactical successes, operational, publicity. And at the fourth level, in terms of inherent rewards, as with all organizations, there was a mixed pattern. Some people had a very terrible time, lost their lives or spent decades in jail. Other people got a lot of fame and power and rewards and renown out of it. So what I try and do is to look at it, I suppose to look at it more calmly rather than emotionally. It's entirely understandable that we all talk about terrorism in a very emotionally charged way because of the awful consequences for its victims. But what I'm trying to do is more look at it like a doctor would look at an illness and say, let's look calmly at what's achieved and try and see how that would explain the ways in which we can try and understand and minimize this phenomenon. That's so interesting. Uh, Dr. English, thank you so much again for coming on the program. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and continue the discussion with uh, Professor Richard English, who has written the book, Does Terrorism Work? A History. Very interesting topic. When we come back from the Matt Townsend Show here in a couple of minutes, thank you for joining us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Professor Richard English, who is a pro-vice chancellor for internationalization and engagement at Queen's University, Belfast. He's also the author of eight books, including the award-winning studies Armed Struggle, the History of the IRA, and Irish Freedom, the History of Nationalism in Ireland. And we have him here on the program this morning. Professor English, thank you so much for being with us. It's a real pleasure, Jeff. Enjoying it very much. So before we went to the break, you you mentioned the four uh, or at least four of the terrorist groups that you study in your book or that you bring up in your book. So um, and then also uh, you talk about in in the book the United States response to terrorism and how maybe our responses maybe are not as effective just as their uh, tactics are not as effective and that you counsel a more restrained response. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I think in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, an American response just had to be a really major engagement because of the atrocity and the loss of life and the psychological shock of that. I think what's often happened historically is that If there's an overly military response to terrorism, it can sometimes backfire. And I think we saw that with the French in Algeria. We've seen that with the British in Ireland. We've seen elements of that with Israel in regard to Palestinian violence. And there's a temptation to use the military in dealing with terrorism, which is very difficult to do. And I think in the war on terror, particularly in the Iraqi aspect of it, there was a sense that uh, the violence that was used to try and deal with terrorism, to try and get rid of al-Qaeda, actually generated some opportunities for al-Qaeda. So, for example, what happened in Iraq in terms of the violence that happened there was often legitimated in the eyes of those who were fighting against America on the grounds that America was seen as an invading and illegitimate power. Now, clearly, that's not how it was intended by the United States, and I fully understand the reasons for the Iraq war and why America went to war. But one of the difficulties with using soldiers to combat terrorism is that it's very difficult to find and isolate the terrorists rather than using violence in ways which has collateral damage. So you find that people are imprisoned who shouldn't be and aren't anything to do with the violence. You find 
sometimes tragically people are killed by soldiers. And this turns the population away from the state, which is trying to counter terrorism, rather than supporting that state. The British ran the same in Belfast, here from where I'm speaking, but there are many examples of this throughout history. And I suppose the challenge, I would say, is to try and have the most effective way of countering terrorism. And if that does involve the restrained, police-led, intelligence-led way of dealing with things, I think it's probably going to turn out to be more effective and significantly the most effective work that's been done by the U.S. against its terrorist opponents has tended to be in that area of gaining the right intelligence, gaining the right convictions and preventing bombs from going off in the first place rather than relying on a more militarized reaction. Okay, so similar question, but maybe on the other side. Uh, because in your book, you're arguing that um, these violent terrorist acts are not effective and not in the ways that uh, that they would need them to be anyway. Um, are they aware of this argument? Are they are they taking other looks at it? Are they are they trying to come up with other strategies other than just these complete uh, <clears throat> excuse me, completely violent acts of terrorism that they're employing right now? It's a really good question. I think what happens often is that early in the cycle of a terrorist group's violence, they think that the violence is actually going to work and bring them victory. But the longer that it goes on, if the argument in my book is is right, the longer that it goes on and turns out that violence isn't producing victory, quite often the smarter people in the movement tend to think, well, if plan A isn't working, maybe we need to look at plan B. So one of the examples I use in the book is Hamas in the Middle East, where the initial phase of what they did was very heavily focused on violence, and tragically they still use violence now in that Israel context. But they also now have got a lot of more diverse methods of struggle. So a lot of it is about social service provision for their people with schools and hospitals and mosques. A lot of it is about electoral engagement and being in parliament and having more orthodox, peaceful political activity. And I think you saw the same thing happening in Ireland with the IRA. I think you've seen the same thing happening with FARC recently in Colombia as well, where because the violence isn't producing what the terrorists thought it would produce in terms of victory, they've then thought, well, are there other ways of gaining struggle other the ways of gaining momentum. I'd say in my interviews with people who've been involved in this violence, a lot of them are very practical and they initially think violence is going to work. When they find it's not, they often try and find a plan B to move towards the same kind of goals but through another route. Interesting. So in the book, you, you do focus on, on these four groups that you've mentioned. What, what would you say are some of the, uh, the differences and similarities that these groups share with ISIS? I think in the case of al-Qaeda, there's a lot that's shared with ISIS. Clearly, al-Qaeda was in some ways the, the, the foundation on which ISIS was built, and there were some organizational connections between the two groups. Clearly, they both share a particular kind of jihadist vision of the world where an un typical and unrepresentative version of Islamic belief and how Islamic rule should be implemented is shared. Both groups wanted to establish a caliphate in terms of an area where there was a certain kind of Muslim rule over large territory. I think the two main differences that there have been is one, that ISIS, unlike al-Qaeda, felt they could move to declare the caliphate much earlier, hence what happened um, a couple of years ago uh, in, in, in Iraq and Syria. But the second thing is that I think some of the violence that ISIS has engaged in has been more sustained at a level which is nearer to a normal military. In other words, the scale of people that have been involved in it is more large scale rather than small scale. And I think that has been a difference too. But I would see ISIS as having very much 
much grown out of al-Qaeda and the responses to, responses to al-Qaeda after 2001, so the groups are linked. There are differences between the groups, obviously, in terms of their, their geographical range, so ETA and the IRA are West European nationalists, whereas Hamas and al-Qaeda have their fire center in the Middle East. But I think there are also some similarities between them in terms of the sense that only violence is going to work in their cause. And I think that's absolutely central. I think this is one, one of the reasons I believe the book is arguing an important case, because if the central reason for them using violence is that only violence will work, and if they're wrong, as I'm arguing that violence won't work, then I think we've got this method which tragically takes so many lives throughout decades across the world, which is based on a misconception of the effectiveness of violence. Professor English, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us uh, this morning on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful question and argument. And uh, the book is Does Terrorism Work? A History by Professor Richard English. Also check out his other books, Armed Struggle, The History of the IRA and Irish Freedom, The History of Nationalism in Ireland. Uh, Dr. English, thank you so much again for being on the program. When we come back, we will take a look at uh, some more news around the country and uh, check out these books. They're wonderful. They present a wonderful question on terrorism, whether or not it works, and what are maybe some other approaches we in the United States can take to, uh, to fight terrorism other than just violence. We'll be right back. This is the, Mount, the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be and see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It is still Tuesday, October 25th. And we're Were still... you hoping for a change? <laughs> I, I thought maybe, you know, there was some uh, time travel while we went to break there. Okay. Uh, but And we're also still Dr. Matless, yes. if that makes sense. He is out of town enjoying Costa Rica for the week. So we're going to have some fun here without him. Not because he's not here, but because we have no, some genuinely... No, strictly because he's not here. Okay. So maybe we can get away with a little more, although uh, Don Shaline, our our station manager... That's probably really he, why we can get away with this. Yeah. <laughs> he's upstairs now. He's part of the board of directors. So, Don, we, we promise to be good. Today is Punk for a Day Day. Reed, you look like the kind of the kind of guy that wants to be a punk for a day. Oh yeah, I could be a punk for a day. Do you? So Terry says he doesn't listen to punk music. How about you? Well, I guess my one question is: Does Blink One Eighty Two count as punk? Yeah, is that punk? Because if it is, I have lots of Blink One Eighty Two. Is that punk or is it? What is that? Alternative rock. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say maybe, uh, yeah. So are you the arbiter on classification of music? <laughs> no. Okay. No. <laughs> I didn't no. know. Cool story about Blink-182, <laughs> though. When I was in high school, there was a competition to uh, – the winner got to have Blink-182 come to your high school and play at your prom. So huh? all these high schools in the in the surrounding districts were completing all these challenges that we had to do. We had to do things like – 
get on TV, have uh, your principal or vice principal sing a song in front of the whole school. And those are both things that we did. I don't we didn't end up winning, obviously, because mm. I went to prom and they weren't there. Hmm. But uh, I think they did it because Blink One Eighty Two is uh, native to yeah. Orange County. Yeah. So anyway, they're it's, giving back. Yeah, and they're lazy. They don't want to travel. <laughs> yeah, I don't. You don't hear much about them these days. They just put out a new album. They did. Yeah, you check it out after the show. I'll think about it. I don't know if today is my day to be a punk. Uh, it's also World Pasta Day. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of pasta if it's super creamy. Hmm. I wouldn't. I never crave pasta. Let's. It's not just really say. the pasta that's creamy. It's the cream sauce that makes that's it true. creamy. The pasta itself is just pasta. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought I'd clear that up. It is also Sourest Day. Last hour we talked about sour foods, but. Uh, who are some sour characters, whether it's in the, the media or, or on the news or in TV and movies that, uh, that are some of your favorites? Hmm. I didn't think of it that way. You know who's I a went good to, one? I went to Sour Patch Kids and stopped. I went, Sour Patch Kids. I don't know if I like those. Moving on. Bert. But Bert? Bert is sour. Of Bert and Ernie? Yes. Well, he's kind of sour. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he, but li- still he, love he, him. he lives with Ernie and Ernie's annoying. Oh, uh, hmm. <laughs> He's quite annoying. <laughs> They're both likable, though. Is the is the thing they well, they find it they make it work. Bert tries to you know have his collections of things and his pigeons and everything, and Ernie's over here just goofing around. Well, I can see why er, why Bert has a problem, and he looks like Bin Laden, but that's different. Ernie is <laughs> is often you know running up the water bill, mm-hmm. which I could see would be Too a problem baths. for Bert. And, uh, you know, he's always – their their rubber ducky supply is always diminishing because, you know, they get mildew in them when you oh, take yeah. so many baths. And, yeah, eventually you have to replace the rubber ducky. Sorry, that was a bit of a stretch. It's all right. Um, and then also – I want to make sure when we when we come back from Sadie, I want to I want you to give me the the ticket prices for the World Series because today is Game uh, One of the World Series between the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs. But first, before all of that good stuff, let's get over to the better stuff with Sadie Nielsen and the news from around the country. Sadie, what's going on? The L.A. Times is reporting that the Pentagon has been demanding repayment of enlistment bonuses, which often reach $15,000 or more, from thousands of California Guard soldiers, many of whom who have served multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Audits completed last month concluded that 9,700 California Guard members were not entitled to the payments or that there had been errors in their paperwork. Pentagon officials acknowledged Monday that the problem probably extends beyond California to probably every state in the country. Healthcare premiums under the Affordable Care Act will see a double-digit hike in 2017, the Obama administration confirmed Monday. Premiums on a standard plan will increase an average 25% in 39 states covered by the healthcare.gov site. Healthcare recipients are also facing a drop in available plans as carriers reduce their role in the federal healthcare plan. Consumers in Alaska, Alabama, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Wyoming will only have one insurance provider to choose from under the 2017 plan. 
Americans' respect for police has climbed to a near-record high, according to a new Gallup poll. The findings released Monday show that 76% of adults say they have a great deal of respect for their local police, a 12-point jump since last year and just one point shy of the all-time Gallup high in 1967. Another 17% of Americans said they have some respect, while 7% said they hardly have any. The poll was released against the backdrop of more than two years of regular nationwide protests over police encounters with unarmed African Americans. And finally, this one goes out to Terry. Um, Doctors have been left baffled by a five-year-old boy who can stick metal objects to his skin, just like X-Men's Magneto. Cool. Yes. Except he he just manipulates metal. He doesn't really attract it. That's true. It's different. But go ahead. Ermin Delic's parents are mystified after noticing their young boy's unusual talent as a human magnet. Incredible footage shows silverware appearing to be attracted to the youngster as he manages to stick three spoons, one fork, and 13 coins to his chest, with still more attached to his back. Ermin's family from Bosnia took him to a doctor to make sure nothing was wrong after they spotted him (laughs) sticking the object to himself while watching television. But the medics were unable to explain this bizarre condition and were left baffled what was causing it. Apparently, it's a real thing. Can he manipulate cars? No. So it's really not a useful power. It's more of a party trick. Yes. I was just thinking, where where would these skills be best put to use? Um, I'm thinking if I'm a parent... You know, I would put him to work uh, unloading the dishwasher and just, you know, scoop up all the the uh, silverware all at once. And then put it on your body? Well, you remove it from your body and you put it in the drawer. See, because mm. the other theory... <laughs> well, then you put it right back in the sink to be washed after the it other, touching your body. The other theory that some of the um, medics have is that he just has really greasy skin. Oh, okay. So it's... Okay. <laughs> But he needs but, to take a bath. Is what but, you're saying? Yes. <laughs> but this is a real phenomenon called human magnetism. Hmm. It is a real thing. Animal magnetism. Human. Oh, human, human magnetism. Yeah. Well, we're animals too. We're all animals. It's not a personality trait. It's a. <laughs> it might be a. Who knows? If your body is attracting metal, that might cause other health issues. You don't know. Yeah. Or it could be to your benefit. Who knows? Yeah. But, if you could sort. If you could command it like Magneto. You'd be the ultimate X-Men. So this boy has a bright and magnetic future. Sadie, thanks so much for those stories. We'll uh, come back to you here in a little bit. Or he'll work a carnival somewhere (laughs) in Europe. Yeah. (laughs) So, Terry, as you know, Game 1 World Series today. What are the ticket prices going for? Game 1 is in Cleveland because the American League won the the All-Star game. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. The Cubs have the better record. By far. But they're the visiting team. Um, so in Cleveland tonight, the average price, this is according to the website StatGeek, $1,156 for the average ticket price of, in the building. Normal tickets are probably like 30 bucks. Are we guaranteed a sighting of Charlie Sheen? No. No. You're, you're guaranteed. That may be an obstructed seat. You may be sitting behind a cement pylon. Do we get, uh, do we get some nachos as a part of that ticket price? That's extra. So what? just to get one seat in the building oh my goodness. on the web. So, you know, last second ticket, it's 1100 bucks. The first game in Chicago, $3,372. What? See, now I could, I could, they do have the better team and they're playing in the better stadium. Yeah. So I could kind of understand the increase, but not that much. Game four and game five. Game five, they're about $4,500 because they could oh clinch. Right? You could clinch in game five. You may yeah. want to be there. 
costs more money. If you have $4,500, you may be able to get one seat, wow. probably one of the worst seats, but one seat in the building. So now how much does it cost me to just watch it from home? Uh, whatever you pay for your uh, television programming, <laughs> whatever your, your cable or satellite provider is. But these won't be on Fox Sports 1 or ESPN. The, what channel will these be on? Probably just Fox, whatever your Fox affiliate is locally. Mm, so I could definitely watch them. Right. And if you, I mean, I have it set up where I can just watch it on an HD antenna. Nice. Which yeah. was, was functional because my Fox affiliate was uh, blacked out on my dish uh, or my dish uh, satellite system for about all summer. I didn't even notice because I don't really watch Fox that much unless sports are on. Once sports came back, I'm like, oh, I need to get this. So I call my dish provider, and they sent me an HD antenna. I got it all set up, and then they came to some sort of agreement. I got the Fox affiliate back. So I have this antenna. It's plugged in. I don't watch it. I don't even use it, but, you know, I have it. That's the way to go instead of paying, you know, 80 bucks. And that's what people do. They get their local channels, and then you go off to – to Netflix or whatever. Yeah. Do we have time to – you would want to play that uh, that last Trump clip. Oh, yeah. That, it, was, it was interesting. Um, so play what, – which clip is it? It's a clip – ah, yeah, six. Clip six. And that's what's happened, big league. We're going to speed up the process, big league. And I will tell you, we are cutting them big league. But I'm going to cut taxes, big league, and you're going to raise taxes, big league. There's been a huge consp- – not conspiracy, but people are confused. Is he saying – Big Lee or Big League? I heard Big League. Play it again. And that's what's happened, Big League. We're going to speed up the process, Big League. And I will tell you, we are cutting them, Big League. But I'm going to cut taxes, Big League, and you're going to raise taxes, Big League. So the New York Times, one of the biggest mysteries of the 2016 election, has been finally solved. That word Donald Trump has repeatedly used on on the campaign trail that starts with big and ends with something maybe league or... Big Lee, as we just heard there, it's kind of tough to tell sometimes. Some of us might, uh, they're saying New York Times got linguists to conduct a voice analysis into the debate of what Trump's actually trying to say once for all. It turns out he's saying Big League. Yes. He has been uh, yes. has been his one of his favorite sayings. He has used it since the 90s. There was an episode of The Apprentice. He was on an interview with uh, CNN with Larry King. He was on The uh, the Apprentice with NBC's Meet the Press. He did an interview there where he mm-hmm. used that same terminology. The linguist found there's good reason for the confusion because when he says bigly or big league is what he's saying, but it sounds like bigly. The New York Times reported that his use of the term, he's using it as an adjective or a figurative noun. That's what it is. But Trump has been using it as an adverb, right? Mm. So his use of it causes confusion because he's not using the word as it would traditionally be used. He's using it as, you know. Maybe he's, maybe he's just trying to tie in his campaign with the big leagues of baseball that are going on right now. He, nah, he's no, he's been using okay. it for years, but he says bigly. And you're <laughs> bigly. Like, it's like he's not finishing the word is the problem. Yeah. So people well, you, have been confused for a you while. you got to shorten your words wherever you can. You do. <laughs> but maybe be a little bit more clear with your big league versus big league. So the problem solved. Thank you, New York Times. Thank you, Except New York Times. it's probably wrong because they're biased against everyone that yes. isn't for Trump. Just, just, that's what he said and we heard today. If it's not, the polls aren't for him, they're wrong. Well, good stuff. Trump, as we know, is, is known for being clear and precise. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, boy, oh boy, have we got a treat for you. Matt Meese, the co-creator, producer, and star of Studio C, 
will be here with us to talk about the show, and we're also going to do a little perform a little skit together. That's coming up next on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm filling in for Matt while he's away on his lovely vacation. Speaking of Matt's, have we got a Matt for you here in the studio this morning. Our next guest you're just going to love, as I do. He started out, well, he didn't start here, but he at one point worked in the Bean Museum on the campus of BYU And uh, he then went on to become a member of BYU's premier comedy troupe, Divine Comedy. And he then graduated in psychology Mm -hmm. from BYU. And then he went on to co-create and star in BYU TV's Studio C. We've got him here in the studio this morning. He's the nicest, talented person I know, and he's also the most talented, nice person that I know, if that makes any sense. Matt Meese, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So we go, you know, we go way back, uh, I don't know, eight years. I guess that's not way back. We're probably not old enough to be going way back. Um but I was hoping this morning that you could kind of give us a little bit of a behind the the scenes with Studio C, talk about how it all came to be and, and where it all started. Luckily, it's not like a behind the music type of deal where it's all tragic all the, and somebody drama, was yeah. addicted to something <laughs> or other. But yeah, could you just give us a little bit of backstory on, on how it all came to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned Divine Comedy. Uh, and for those who don't know, that's where Jeff and I met is Divine Comedy. We, we, our first year – well, my first year, Jeff's only year in Divine Comedy, sadly, was my first year. They kicked me out. They they did not. He he graduated and got married and, and lived a full life <laughs> for eight years. I'm still living it. <laughs> no, no. Um, but uh, then uh, – yeah, so we – I did that. I stayed at Divine Comedy because I didn't get married and that's the rule. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I stayed there for five years. I did Divine Comedy. And um, and I heard that TV was looking for new content. And I said, well, we're new for TV at least. And so I came over to the station and met with Jared Shores. And I said, Jared, why don't you just uh, – I told him like our YouTube numbers and stuff, which, you know, not much to, to – uh, speak of at the time, but I think <laughs> I think BYUtv was like fresh enough and looking for new stuff enough that our numbers were like, yeah, okay, those are not bad. And uh, so I said, why don't you just come to a show? And I think it'll just sell itself. You can see the audience react to us. You can see the content we're doing. You can see the talent, et cetera, et cetera. And so he came. He saw. He liked it. And uh, and then it was basically like, how do we just put cameras in front of this and and make it work? Right. Excellent. So now I, I know even Studio C itself kind of went through a few different iterations, right? Didn't it? Mm. What did it start out as? What was the name of it before it was Studio C? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> we came up with a lot of names, uh, but I think the only one that we really landed on was called Common Room. 
uh, because Jeremy on a whim said, let's just call it Gryffindor Common Room. And we're like, actually, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> well, but why would we just call it Common Room? Um, but then Common Room had already been taken by someone, uh, by a group that uh, – uh, yeah, we were like, yeah, we, we don't want to share <laughs> anything. Of course, yeah. Studio C has, we have found, been taken by many, many groups. Um, but hopefully we're the the biggest Studio C there is now. Well, we've never heard of another Studio C or even another common room unless it was from Harry Potter. So you guys are doing something <laughs> right, right? Uh, I think there's like a Studio C makeup thing and we've just – Oh. Destroyed them now on Instagram because if you search the hashtag, mm. you will rarely find makeup anymore. And you'll just. Maybe you guys should partner up or something. Maybe they could uh, do the makeup for the show. Oh. Now you're thinking. Uh, it's not that great of an idea. It's, it's all right. It's not a bad one, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Studio C, um, you, you started out in Divine Comedy. Had you ever mm. seen a Divine Comedy show before you had auditioned? Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to a couple of their best of shows. That's mm-hmm. just like the best things that they had that semester. And uh, and it, it was it's such a big event. You know, they do it in the JSB, which seats like 844 people or something like that. Um, and, uh, and it's just packed and they throw glow sticks and candy and it's just high energy and the sketches were hilarious. And I just thought, man, it looks like they're having so much fun. Um, and so that that incubated in me, <laughs> those seeds had been planted. yeah, and yeah, and so I I decided I I had to audition because if I didn't audition, I would always I would always wonder what what if I had auditioned? Sure, you know, I'd, I'd regret it. You know, so my first memory of you, I had never been to a Divine Comedy show, um, and a friend handed me a flyer, uh, actually another Divine comedian. Uh-huh. Matt. It was another Matt. Was it Matt? Uh, uh, Stringham. Stringham. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't really know anything about it. Wanted to. I knew they were having two days of audition, so I went over there to just try to get a taste of what people were responding to and maybe yeah. what they were looking for. And I walk in, and I don't think it was you. I don't think you were the first person that I saw, but I remember you getting up with a guitar, uh-huh. and they you only get two minutes, and they're very strict about that, right? And you were you were speak singing a song <laughs> about a bird. Yes. And you had the audience in stitches. And I remember also thinking that you were really funny. And I thought, oh, man, I've got my work cut out for me. I better go home and put something together that's really spectacular. Ah. So that's my first memory of you. Um, getting back to Studio C a little bit, what is it about Studio C – which is a half an hour sketch comedy show on BYU TV. What is it about Studio C that is different from other sketch comedy shows? Well, uh, that's that's a good question, and I think the big thing uh, is that we we try to make sure that uh, all the content is appropriate for everyone. So the idea being that a family could sit down and watch it together, and no one has to like. You know, muted at a certain part, or like, okay, we'll watch this after the kids go to bed, kind of a thing. Or the kids really like this, but the adults don't, and they're just humoring the kids, or whatever. You know what I mean? We don't. Yeah. We didn't want that. We want something that was legitimately entertaining and safe for everyone. Sure. So uh, that used to be a more common thing. It has since gone out of style, and so it gives us this great niche because very few people are doing it anymore. 
You're right. You know, there, there, there doesn't seem to be very much content for people who are looking for clean entertainment. I read an interesting quote recently from Zach Galifianakis, of all people. Mm. Uh, he just uh, came out with this movie, Masterminds. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, Jared Hess, who's a yeah. BYU alum. And uh, I think he is anyway. He is. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, he is because that's where he met uh, met up with John Heater and, okay. and all those guys. Yeah. Um, he talked about how refreshing it was to do a movie like this, a movie that you could take your aunt to uh, is how he described uh-huh. it. You know, and there's not that awkward – uh, quiet ride home with your aunt in the car, not knowing what to say because of all these obscenities that you'd seen on the screen. So, yeah, even people that are in Hollywood that are putting out this content that maybe isn't as clean are agreeing that, you know, it's kind of a breath of fresh air to have something yeah. that I can watch with my family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you guys have been on the air now for so – you're going on your seventh season? Seventh season. But we've only been on the air I think four years. OK. Because uh, we were doing two seasons uh, per year for a while. Um, and we're basically doing that now except we just decided why, why do two smaller seasons? Let's just combine them into one big nightmare season. <laughs> and that's what we've done the past two years. When we were doing two seasons a year, it was we would write for a couple months, film for a couple months, then write for a couple months, film for a couple months. Or I say couple, but it's probably more like three to four or something. Yeah, like that. You know yeah. Um, and so it just kind of broke it up a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but when we moved to like one big season, it was, all right, we're going to write for six months and wow. then we're going to film for six months. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's so fun. Like I do enjoy it. Um, it's just like, you know, you're like, ah, we need to find a way to like break up the pace. And so I think we've gotten clever about how to how to do that. It's uh, we've we've mixed in some of the filming within the writing. So, it's, you know, we'll spend two months solely dedicated to writing and then we'll start like filming every other weekend while we're still writing. Yeah. And so it just mixes it up. And it, that's been nice. See, these are all the little interesting tidbits that I'm sure a lot of your fans would love to hear about, you know, the process of the show and and what you guys go through to put on these shows and you guys do a spectacular job by the way. Thank you. Any any little other tidbits or I don't I, I guess we don't have to call them secrets but little behind the scene uh things that people might find interesting yeah. or even a, a story. Well, I I don't have any like story that jumps to mind per se, but I can tell you a little bit about the process um and maybe something will come to mind. I mean, Let's for, do it. For example, like we always change up our writing process every year. Um, partially because it's like we just need to just change it, keep it fresh. Um, and this last year, what we did is I said, why don't we just break up into two writers' rooms, and um, each room is responsible for bringing uh, five fully fledged edited sketches to the end of the week pitch meeting on Friday. And so uh, that gives us ten sketches to look at on Friday after we've you know vetted them and edited them. So they should be like pretty good sketches by the time we get to Friday. And the goal is that we need to approve seven of them. And so uh, backing up, in order to get to five good sketches, you have to pitch at least 10 as a group. Um, and in and so it's just it's just the rule, and that's like that's a great average. If you're keeping half of what you write, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, as far as batting averages go, if you get on base half the time, you, Absolutely. you're making tons of money. So you guys are batting 500. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> um, or at least, you know, somewhere in there, like, honestly, like, even if you kept a third of what you write, that's still yeah. great. So uh, I think the audience might be surprised to know that we throw away at least half of everything that we've written. Hmm. And so you might watch the episode and be like, I didn't like that sketch. Be like, Imagine what we threw away. <laughs> See, now that would either make a good, a good sketch on its own or maybe like a – an extra season of of yeah. Studio C during an off time or off season. Hmm. It, there's plenty of stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and I honestly, and some of it's like probably better than we think it is. That's sure. fair, but I think generally speaking, we, we've been pretty accurate. I think you know somewhere around eighty ninety percent of the time we're like pretty pretty on. We're speaking here with uh, Matt Meese, co creator. And cast member of Studio C, he's kind enough to be here with us this morning. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We've got uh, something that we think should be fun for the listeners. If not, it'll be fun for Matt and me. (laughs) Uh, But we'll come back here in a minute. We'll have a little bit of fun with a little sketch that uh, we put together. And uh, we'll be back in a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier, happier, and hopefully funnier lives. We'll be right back. Now to Scott Sterling. He looks a bit worse for wear, but ready for round two. And Shaw takes a moment. Here he goes with the approach. Oh! oh! Sterling with a fantastic dive. The ball flies straight through his hands and once again strikes him straight in the schnoz. And let's see it again on the old instant replay. Oh, every excruciating detail captured in HD perfection. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. That, of course, is a clip from the famous Scott Sterling sketch on Studio C, made famous by Matt Meese, who is our guest here this morning. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So uh, just really quickly with that sketch, is that one that you wrote or did one of the other cast members write that? Yeah, I I wrote that and – but uh, a lot of like some of the some of the funniest lines uh, didn't come from me. It was just improv uh, when we got Stephen and Jason into the sound booth to record the audio, and we actually had to make up a, quite a bit of time because we had the, the sketch was much longer than I had scripted it to be. It was like five <laughs> minutes or something ridiculous. Wow, and, Scott know. Sterling probably would not be alive after five minutes of that. <laughs> That's really interesting. You brought up something that. Uh, that maybe most people don't think about that in the writing process, perhaps um, other people can help lift a script higher than it was before. Yeah. That sounds, you know, that, that kind of reminds me of, of how it was in Divine Comedy, too. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely t- took that pattern. You know, yeah. We, we were all in Divine Comedy, and so we carried a lot of things over from that. So you were all in Divine Comedy. Mm-hmm. Is that, would you say that's your favorite sketch, by the way? Uh, I. Uh, maybe. Uh, it just, it's so hard because like all the new stuff you write, you're like, oh yeah, this is my, my new favorite. And you just keep looking forward, ideally. They're all your babies. <laughs> or not your baby, Hopefully as not. they would say in Divine Comedy. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about, I when I gave the introduction for you, I mentioned that you have a degree in psychology. That is right. 
and yet you're not working in psychology. <laughs> but in a way, maybe you are. What is it, it? It seems like I know several people that have gotten a degree in psychology and yet they do something related to comedy or performance. Mm. What mm. are the benefits of having the psychology degree? I, I I think there are a lot of benefits uh, just generally and I think what the biggest takeaway for me from my degree was that um, well, the, everyone's like their own brand of crazy and <laughs> and we all have a lot in common and yet at the same time, we also like approach things differently. We just have different perspective on things but at the end of the day, we're more alike than we care to acknowledge sometimes or, mm. or maybe realize. So um, – I think there is something about comedy that is just like this universal thing. It's this like great equalizer in a lot of ways. It just brings everyone in and gives them a shared experience. And some sketches like Scott Sterling, uh, they kind of transcend some language barriers because there's a lot of physical comedy there. And so uh, – and Scott Sterling, the first one, got, got big overseas like in Europe somewhere. Um, before it, it got big here. Mm. And so it was just one of those things where it's like, yeah, we we are similar, aren't we? I mean, here are these people across the world speaking different languages, having very different cultural experiences, and yet still enjoy something as much as we do. And and uh, yeah, we're, we're more alike than we're different. So I'm curious, what makes you laugh? Obviously, you know, you work with with a bunch of other people that are super funny, whether it's in the writing room or just in rehearsal, mm-hmm. you're constantly surrounded by these funny people. But, you know, just at home when you're watching a show or what what makes you laugh? Yeah, I honestly – and I, I guess this is almost expected, but I, I think physical comedy is very funny. Um, I, I find a lot of different kinds of humor very fun. But the thing that like will – make me laugh out loud and consistently is usually physical comedy type stuff um, or someone just saying something in a funny way. It's more performance than it is the line. Sure. That makes sense. Any any examples? Oh, man. I mean like my first influences I think are, are uh, people like Steve Martin, Martin Short. Sure. Uh, they, they definitely – Made me laugh a lot, but you know, like I also watched Three Stooges, which you know is considered more, much more lowbrow kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And but I, you know, I just enjoyed it. And uh, growing up, man, there's there's been a lot of people that I really admire. I think Zach Braff is very funny. I think Robert Downey Jr. I think um, uh, I think um, uh, Kate McKinnon. I think is oh my uh, goodness, she just kills me. She just won an <laughs> Emmy. For Saturday Night Live. Oh, did she? Good. Yeah, she, she deserves did. one. She deserves yeah. several. I think she's fantastic. You mentioned Martin Short. I, For me, I, I don't think I can watch a Jiminy Glick segment <laughs> and not cry, be crying right. at the end. It's, it's so, so funny. funny. Yeah. Uh, so another thing, kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about, you know, a lot of people, I think they just have this mindset of, oh, this guy's funny. You know, he can he can put it on at the drop of a hat. I mean, he loves to always be on. Are you the type of person that always loves to be in the spotlight? Are you more of an extrovert or are you more of an introvert? Uh, I, I'm definitely more of an introvert, which honestly, I knew it. <laughs> it's like basically the whole cast is that way. I think Stacy might be the exception. Um, but generally everyone's like pretty, pretty calm and 
uh, not what you might expect based on just watching us on TV. Yeah. You know, just like, yeah, we're just normal and, and not looking for attention, I guess, is the is Sure. The I, was, I was never the class clown or anything like that. I was just – it's just Matt. <laughs> Still am. So yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, when it's time to perform, it's it's a different. Ball yeah. Game. Well, Matt, we've really appreciated having you on the show. Um, before we let you go, speaking of uh, putting you on the spot mm-hmm. and making you uh, perform for us, we thought it'd be fun. Well, I thought it'd be fun, and and Matt graciously agreed to it. But uh, we've got a little old radio sketch here that we would like to perform. Uh, I'm, I'll give you a little background. It's, it, it's about a uh, school-aged, an elementary school-aged detective, and it's kind of in the vein of all those old radio shows that uh, many of you may have uh, you grew up listening to. So uh, we're just going to hop right into it and enjoy, starring Matt Meese. And Jeff Jeff Simpson. Simpson. Get ready for mystery. Get ready for suspense. Get ready for Cliff Regan, school-age detective. Today's episode, Dramatic Deception. I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for Detective Regan here. Well, when I get out of jail, I'm coming to get you, Regan. Do you hear me? I'm coming to get you. The name's Regan. Cliff Regan. And when you're in my line of work, you get threats like this every day. This one was from Francis Fairwater, a no-good drama teacher I caught stealing school supplies and selling them on the black market. Oh, I almost forgot. I'm a private detective for the school I attend, Soft Shoe Elementary. I hadn't thought about that case in over a year. But then I picked up the newspaper and noticed Fairwater was released from prison on good behavior. I had to laugh good behavior wasn't in Fairwater's vocabulary. I was about to turn to the funny pages when I heard a knock at the door. Come in. In walks this dame with graying hair and a slim figure. She looked down on her luck, which is probably why she was knocking on my door. Pardon the intrusion, but are you Cliff Regan, the famous detective? That's what my mom calls me. Her name was Beverly. Pleased to meet you. I'm Lady Catherine. All right, so her name wasn't Beverly, but I had a suspicious feeling it wasn't Lady Catherine either. Uh, what can I do for you, Lady Catherine? Oh, Detective Regan, I just had the most terrible news. Really, I'm just beside myself. This has just been the most dreadful experience I've ever experienced. Why don't we just take it from the top, slowly? She had been walking to Soft Shoe Elementary to pick up her nephew, Joey Morgan, when this kid jumps out of the bushes and takes her priceless gold necklace she had just happened to be wearing. When you're in my line of work, you hear the same sob story every day. She grabbed me by the coat and started to beg, just like a... well, just like someone who begs. Please, Detective Regan, you've got to help me. You're the only one who can. I don't know, lady. I'm pretty busy here. Why don't you try the police? No, I I mean, uh, the police will just have me fill out a report and then they'll forget about it. No, no, I need someone who can offer quick results. You know, everyone in town says you're the best. You flatten me. You mean I flatter you? No, I mean you flatten me. You're stepping on my foot. Uh, Forgive me, Detective Regan. Oh, but you will find my necklace for me, won't you? Of course I will. When you're in my line of work, it's your job. Lady Catherine hadn't given me much of a description on the kid who took her gold necklace, but it sounded like the work of the school miscreant, Shorty. 
Oh, hey there, Regan. Solve any big mysteries lately? <laughs> Maybe you figured out what the lunch lady puts in the meatloaf. Uh Enough small talk, Shorty. Where were you yesterday after school? Whoa, whoa, what's with all the questions? Am I in some sort of trouble here? You might be if you don't start talking. Oh, I'd love to chat if, uh, if the price is right. Save it, Shorty. You're not getting any of my money. I've got enough dirt on you to put you in detention until you're retired. All right, all right. Well, uh, let me see. Yesterday after school, I was, uh, burning ants with a magnifying glass. Ants, huh? You sure you weren't busy terrorizing a different type of ant? What are you talking about? Oh, why don't you just come clean? Isn't it true that you attacked Joey Morgan's Aunt Lady Catherine and took her gold necklace? No, it ain't true. Look, you gotta believe me. Why don't you ask Joey Morgan for yourself? Well, maybe I'll just ask Joey's Aunt Lady Catherine. You could, but I don't think it would do you any good. Oh, yeah? Why's that? Because Joey Morgan doesn't have an aunt. Well, Shorty's story checked out. Not only did Joey Morgan not have an aunt, but he had never heard of Lady Catherine. I had several questions on my mind. Who was this Lady Catherine? And why did she lie to me? Was there even a gold necklace stolen? And what did the lunch lady put in the meatloaf? As I sat at home searching for the answers, the phone rang. Regan here. Hello, Detective Regan. Lady Catherine here. Oh, Lady Catherine. What a treat. Detective Regan, I don't have much time to talk, but can we meet somewhere? I believe I have some information regarding my case that you might find very interesting. More interesting than the information I got from your nephew, Joey? Detective Regan, please. I've got to meet with you. It's not safe where I am. I'm afraid I... Oh, someone's coming. Who is it? I've got to go. Meet me at your office tonight at six o'clock. Lady Catherine, wait. What's going on? This case was like a hot stove. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I was heading out the door when suddenly it hit me. The door hit me right between the eyes. I must not have been watching where I was going. But if I hadn't run into that door, I may not have solved the mystery. Will Cliff Regan get to the bottom of the case of the stolen necklace? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Hello. That was a word from our sponsor. And now, it's time for the thrilling conclusion to Dramatic Deception. When we last left our hero, Cliff Regan, school-age detective, he was on his way to his office to meet Lady Catherine. Good evening, Detective Regan. It was Francis Fairwater, the no-good drama teacher I put away a year ago. Surprised to see me? Not really. I had a feeling I'd be seeing you tonight. I see. And how did you get that feeling? First of all, when I saw you in the paper that you'd been released from prison, I knew it was only a matter of time before you started some sort of scheme. When I figured out there was no Lady Catherine, I knew the woman who came to my office had to be a pretty good actor. Then I remembered you were a drama teacher, and that your favorite actress was Catherine Hepburn. Well done, Detective Regan. But you're wrong about one thing. There is such a person as Lady Catherine, and she really did have her gold necklace stolen by me. Fortunately, I was in disguise, so for all she knows, it could have been anyone. Why, it could have been you. Let me...
me guess the rest. You had me come here so you could plant Lady Catherine's gold necklace on me. She's on her way right now with the police, and when they get here, I try to tell them I was helping Lady Catherine to find her necklace. Lady Catherine will say she's never met me. I'll go to jail, and Lady Catherine will go home with her gold necklace. But it won't be the real gold necklace, will it? You'll have held on to the real necklace. Am I right? Precisely. You know, Detective Regan, you really are the best. But I'm afraid your days of solving crimes have run their course. Now let's just sit tight, and when the police get here, they'll catch you. Gold-handed. Not so fast, Fairwater. You just confessed to stealing Lady Catherine's necklace, and I have a witness to prove it. Come on out, Shorty. Way to go, Regan. You really cooked his goose. What? No! Now we can sit tight and wait for the police. All right, Regan, now we're even. Boy, you sure did solve that mystery. Say, do you think we'll ever find out what that lunch lady puts in the meatloaf? Shorty, there are some mysteries that may never be solved. But when you're in my line of work, you've got to accept that. Yes! Oh, well man. done. Brilliant, Matt Meese! This kind of thing is so fun. Ah. <sighs> Thank you so much. And, you know, want to give you one more big thank you for coming on to the show this morning. We know that you're a busy guy. So what, what, time, what time can our viewers catch Studio C? Every Monday night, 8 o'clock on BYU uh, TV. Perfect. <laughs> Matt Meese, thanks again for being here. We appreciate you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and we are here to help you live healthier, happier, and hopefully funnier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. That music is kind of creeping me out. But it's very fitting for what we're going to talk about next. Uh, We're going to be talking about haunted houses. Haunted houses are probably one of the most anticipated parts about Halloween, except for maybe the candy, of course. So why do we do it? Why do we enjoy the thrill of being touched, tortured, and terrified? Well, our very own Caitlin Thomas is here in the studio with us this morning to talk a little bit more about the psychology behind haunted houses. Welcome to the program, Caitlin. Welcome back. Good morning. That was some good intro music. Yeah. Spooky. I like it. Well, okay, so last weekend, Jeff, remember I was talking to you about how my friends and I were planning on going to... The haunted house. Yes. So we waited in line. I mean, it was packed. Like, we waited in line for over an hour, maybe an hour and a half, just to get the ticket. Then we had to wait another, like, 20, 30 minutes to actually get in. You know, and it cost each of us, like, close to $30 a piece. What? We were so stoked. We were so stoked to get in there. And, but as I was waiting in line, and some people would get in there in the line, and they just had sheer panic on their face wow. like they look like they hated it and i'm thinking why why do we do this like and they actually the workers took one of the guys that was in our group they just pulled him out of line and shoved him in the haunted house without us and he had to go through it alone and <laughs> and uh yeah I was, so i remember i stopped and i was thinking why do we do this to ourselves the, what do we love about this so much I that don't know. was a gutsy move on the on the part of the worker too because that seems like the type of thing that could get somebody sued they but they did it but it's in the like the rules so it's it's a full contact oh, okay. haunted house and uh, you know that there's the risk that you could get separated and 
you know, stored in a closet or a room by yourself. You didn't have to sign a waiver or anything, did you? You did. You, oh they my actually goodness. fingerprinted you in everything. What? Yeah. And then they stole your identity while you were in the See, haunted that's house. What I asked him about that. I was a little <laughs> worried. But, I mean, my one friend got separated from us and he ended up, he made it out and then the workers threw him back in. He actually went through the haunted house three times. Wow. By so himself. he's got some guts. <laughs> so he, anyway. Um, so I was just thinking, why do we do this? And I know that you love haunted houses, so I thought this would be a fun one for well, us to talk about. Well, I've been to a couple of haunted houses, and I've even been to what's called Knott's Scary Farm. It's it's basically the whole theme park of Knott's Berry Farm is turned into haunted. a haunted house, basically, and you have employees that are coming out and scaring you. I'm I'm a bigger I'm a bigger fan of scary movies than I am of scary houses. Okay, well, I t- I actually looked up a couple of articles, and I actually got a quote from a. The Dean of College of Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Utah. His name's David Rudd. And he said that people enjoy feeling scared and seek the feeling out with movies and haunted houses because deep down they know they are in no real danger. Hmm. So we know that it's scary and we enjoy that thrill, but it's because we know deep down our conscious mind knows that it's not real. Sean is shaking his head profusely over here. 2008. Uh-oh. Universal Studios. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sounds like we have some PTSD over in the corner. There's a haunted house at Universal Studios <laughs> in in California. My wife and I are there. My wife says, well, let's go through the haunted house. I ended up bleeding from my arm after her fingernails were dug into my you. arm. And this was only halfway through. Yeah. My dad We, we left halfway through. So. My dad hates him. He won't do it. Every time we try and do, like, the more kid-friendly, scary corn mazes, he mm-hmm. has a sudden flu. And he's like, I got to go. I'm out. And so, he just won't do it. And he leaves my mom by herself. So just make sure that you trim your nails before you go to a haunted house. Yes. Or make sure your wife trims make her sure, nails. Well, and I, I mean, there are some people that have, like, a high level of anxiety. And if you know that's you, there's nothing wrong with that. But maybe you should start off with, you know the less scary yeah. haunted houses. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned probably not the 10 that we're about to talk about right ah. now. So tell us tell us some of these I found a the list scariest places. Of the scariest haunted houses in the US. Sadly, this was from last year, so it it, it could have changed this year, but none of these ones were from Utah, so I'm a little disappointed. But the Is first Monster one Monster House on the list? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the first one's in Denver, Colorado. It's called 13th Floor. And I guess there is there's 13 floors that you have to go through, but you'll run into real Live rats, snakes, and spiders. And it features an angry clown who, after years of neglect, has developed a taste for blood. Well, there you go. So Anything with a clown these days. The... Ew, real rats? I don't know if I could do that. That might be my breaking point. <laughs> I think there's a new law that's coming out. If there's going to be a clown at a haunted house, they have to put up a sign disclosing the fact that there's going to this be a clown. Is not... <laughs> this year, probably. <laughs> I actually saw one that was sounded terrifying. So this one's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and it's called the 13th Gate. So it's interesting. But it's located in the backwoods, and it features voodoo haunts, snake-infested swamps, claustrophobic cellars, and a prehistoric ice cave. You take a terrifying crawl through underground tunnels and a crematory oven before embarking on a harrowing ride in an old hearse Ooh, by yourself. Underground tunnels, that would scare a lot of people. Try not to get lost. You may find yourself on a rickety bridge overlooking hundreds of live snakes. <sighs> More snakes. Snakes. Why does it know. always have to be snakes? I don't <laughs> Indiana know. Indiana Jones. I'm not sure how I feel about that one. How do you feel about snakes? I hate snakes. Hmm. So you're probably not going to either probably one Probably not going okay. to that one. All right. Um, there is the Scream Zone, 
in Del Mar, California. This is four different haunted houses in one. So you pay and you get all four of them. One of the popular houses allows visitors to fight off ghoulish clowns with a paintball gun. So is this... You get armed with a paintball (laughs) gun and you get to fight off the clowns, um, but the clowns also have paintball guns and they will fight back. Are you serious? And apparently you can't touch the clowns. You can only shoot the clowns, but the clowns can grab you and steal your paintball gun and lock you in a closet. This sounds amazing. I want to do that one. Oh, my goodness. I don't wow. need welts from a paintball gun as well as being scared out of my pants. I How many people I out there right now would love to shoot a clown with a paintball gun? I went. I did zombie paintball over the weekend with my family. That was fun. But See, the zombies weren't armed, so it's a little different. Yeah, I, I would say I wouldn't think Ooh. they're coordinated enough to no. fire off a paintball gun. Um, Crest Hill, Illinois has the Statesville Haunted Prison. And the Haunted Prison is located 40 miles southwest of Chicago. And sits in the shadow of the real Stateville Maximum Security Prison. Ooh, that's another Ooh. big fear that people have, prisons. Its theme, it's a prison riot. Guests are led through 23 maximum security cells and come face-to-face with over 100 ghostly criminals that the attraction claims are too evil to die. What? Ooh. So they're going to make up these heinous, gross crimes. Ooh. So, ooh. This is scary I think these stuff. Are, these are all full-contact haunted houses, so... Caitlin, did you happen to see the Saturday Night Live sketch over the weekend with Tom Hanks about haunted houses? No. So it's this couple that's taking this elevator to all these different floors where there are all these different scary characters that are there. And they open up the door on one of the floors and it's these two skeleton costume people and Tom Hanks in this pumpkin tie, pumpkin suit. And he's saying, I'm David Pumpkins. And then they all start dancing. (laughs) And it was obviously not scary, but it has a it has a pretty good punchline at the end. You should go check it out. I mean, we should put that Does on that Twitter. scare you, Tom Hanks in a pumpkin suit and tie? That saying, sounds a little I'm scary. Baby pumpkins. That sounds a little scary. <laughs> but I mean, they're fun. Get into yes. the spirit. I mean, if you're too afraid, don't go to the full body contact. Mm. They put it on the website. You know, check out the website. Say it's kid friendly. A lot of them will even say it's not good for you know, sixteen or younger or whatever. Check it out. But go. It's fun. Get a haunted corn maze. So we've learned. Go to the haunted forest. I don't know. So we've learned don't go to the ones with the, the uh, waivers and, and make sure that your wife clips her, her clips nails her mm-hmm. before you go. You go. You go. Yeah. Caitlin, Happy once again, Halloween. you've knocked it out of the park. What a fun story and uh, scary. I'm creeped out by some of those. Ooh. Just talking about them. No kidding. Good stuff. Well, Halloween is coming up on Monday, so we have that to look forward to. Look for some of these and other great haunted houses and other Halloween events that are happening in your neck of the woods. Just steer clear of the clowns, as always, as we like to say here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back with some more fun stories, and uh, we'll also be speaking with our health evangelist, Ron Hager. He'll be here in the studio when we come back on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, just like the second hour, this third hour is still, we're still on Tuesday, the 25th. Nothing has changed there. But, uh... 
And the other thing that hasn't changed is we are still Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. Uh, my name is Jeff Simpson. I'm Matt's co-host and the board operator. And I'm joined here today, just as always, with, uh, with Terry South and today also with Sean O'Neill. And uh, we're just thrilled to have him here today. And uh, he's, Thrilled. I, I was sincere in my... The emotion that is flowing at the on. moment is just overwhelming. <laughs> I tried to make it sound sincere and not la, over the top. La, yeah. la, it's great. It's great. La, That's okay. wonderful. So, Terry, since you're going to be a punk, I should yeah. probably bring up the fact <laughs> that today is punk for a day day. So you only... I'm going to let you slide just for today with the punk business. Well, I, I, I see Sean every day. I, I'm okay. like, am I thrilled? No, it's like, hey, Sean, what's up? So I'm going to see you tomorrow. Usual. See you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Sean, do you like punk music? Uh, I used to. Not so much anymore. Okay. We were having a discussion about whether or not Blink-182 was considered punk music. Oh, that's a whole... See, that's the the problem. There's a whole discussion behind that. Is punk music in the 70s? Yeah. Or and then from that mm. point like the definitional slide to encompass all uh, and then there's then it fragments again. Exactly. And you get different then there's ska I mean, and there's I mean, different you could, types yeah. in it, you know. You could you could argue that uh, Blondie was a punk band at right. one time. I love me some Blondie. Yeah. Blondie is awesome. You know, us so, old folks who actually witnessed the punk movement. <laughs> Jeff was Jeff was uh taking the mantle of supreme arbiter of all music genre but uh, he, he didn't want to do that so okay not knowingly you called me on it and i i, well, I agreed didn't call with you, you i just actually, asked if you were if you if you if you want to know I had some questions i want to know. Oh, if you want some insight into the punk movement of the 70s you should oh. watch the there's a documentary called new york doll okay. i've seen it have you seen it yeah great movie yeah, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. One of the band members uh, ended up yeah, joining don't, the don't LDS. Don't spoil the twist. Uh, that, that's not the twist. Okay, but that's yeah. <laughs> they, they they found a member of the New York Dolls, hmm. which was a, a a punk band back hmm. in New York in the seventies, and he had become a member of the LDS Church and was working at the Los Angeles Temple. That is go. crazy. Mm-hmm. Two cool. completely different lifestyles. <laughs> so but they were they were seriously they had interviews from Morrissey and Chrissy Hind about this guy and, and what his influence was on them. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. It's an amazing movie. Well go check it out, New York Doll. Uh it's a little bit of I mean, as far as punk bands go, it's probably a little more obscure than some of the more prominent ones, but if you're a, a fan of punk music, then you know the New York Dolls. I know that much, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today is also World Pasta Day, so go out and have a, a plate of pasta. If you're going to, uh, Janelle, if you're listening, I don't want any pasta that's too creamy. Um, and then it's also Sourest Day. Try a new pasta. Yeah, expand your boundaries. Try tortellini and brodo. Pastaroni? Does that count? Like I had no. spaghetti and meatballs last night. It was <laughs> Chef, Chef Boyardi is not pasta. Okay. Yeah. So, by the way, one of my it's nicknames not even qualify as food, really. <laughs> one of my nicknames growing up was Jeff Boyardi. Mm. Oh, I'm okay. Sorry. But uh, that's Were you canned. Is that what? <laughs> my family convinced me that uh, I made the best cookies. But then I, the older I got, the more I realized they're probably just not wanting to be the ones to make the cookies themselves. Yeah, and you so think? they're just. Yeah, I figured it out. This is why I make breakfast every morning. Now. Yes. It's why my dad told me I was the best at mowing the lawn, right? Because he didn't want to mow <laughs> so the lawn flattery, anymore. flattery works, just so you know. You do if, that really well. I do it every Thursday. Thank yeah. you. 
Well, uh, so we've already, I mean, I don't think we're going to talk any more about those, but just for your information, it's those uh, fun days today and go out and celebrate all of them all at once. Be a punk while you're eating pasta and having a dessert of sour lime pie or something. I don't know. There you go. Anyway, uh, all of that. Key lime pie pasta. We're on to something here. Why don't we turn it over to Sadie Nielsen in the newsroom, who is always a great authority on what's going on around the country, and she always graces us with her lovely presence. Sadie, what's going on right now? A man jumped from a bridge on Interstate 287, holding his two children in New Jersey on Monday night, police said. The man died from the fall, but the two kids have survived. New Jersey State Police were notified of a possible suicide attempt at around 8 p.m., but they found the man's car parked on the side of the road where he has thought to have jumped. The man's body was later recovered, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. His children were found to have non-life-threatening injuries and were taken to a hospital for treatment. No further details were available on the man's identity or the ages of the children. Twitter is preparing to cut an estimated 8% of its workforce this week, people familiar with the decision told Bloomberg. The reduction of approximately 300 people comes ahead of Twitter's third quarter earnings report, expected 7 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. The company has faced continued struggles to turn itself around, with a 40% fall in its share price in the past year, making it tempting for engineers to exit for rivals like Google and Facebook. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are both in Florida on Tuesday making aggressive pushes in the final days of the presidential election cycle. The state is an essential win for Trump, who would face a highly improbable path to the White House if he were to lose it. Clinton has a 3 to 5 percent edge in polls that are adjusted to reflect Florida's electorate. Trump has denied reports that he is down in the state. His visit Tuesday comes in the middle of a seven-city tour of the Sunshine State. And finally, this one yes. is for Matt, but unfortunately he's not here today, so we will go on without him. Um, the humble loaf of bread is getting a makeover. Now instead of just cronuts, there are crow loaves <gasps> as well. Uh, made with French butter and free-range egg pastry, the retailer says it's perfect toasted and spread with jam. Free-range egg mm. pastry? So basically organic. Well, just the, the like eggs. a croissant. Yeah. Buy an egg. The, it's a free-range chicken. The more egg. antibiotics, the better. Just get, get buy an egg. <laughs> okay, well, you don't have to have any, Terry. It's fine. But the M&S Bakery expert of it said, Our croissant loaf is perfect for those who like the convenience of grabbing a slice of toast for breakfast, mm. but love the delicious buttery taste of croissants. Now they don't mm. have to compromise and can enjoy the best of both. Wow. I think I still would prefer a, a uh, cronut. Yeah, Holla. those those were Holla bread. But it does get <laughs> it does get annoying when you have to take the piece of bread and stack a, a croissant on top of it just to get that taste you yeah. crave. Now you have both in the same product. I would try it. I most definitely would try. It. I would too. And Terry, you know there there is kind of a different. Well, at least I had to tell this to people because my previous job, well, it was a couple years ago. I actually worked for a an organic. Free range uh, chicken farmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not. I it's kid a real you not. thing, Terry. It's no, a real thing. I know it's a real Mary's thing. Mary's chicken. It just sounds pretentious when you say Mary's all chickens. The Mary's chickens. Mary's chickens. Call it an egg. The only place you can uh, buy them south of the point of the mountain here in Utah County is at uh, the Harmons on Eighth in Orem. Anyway, wow. free range, air, air chilled chicken. 
So instead of water chilling the yeah. chickens, the chickens are air chilled. You laugh. Do you give them a pedicure if you too? You try this chicken. It's the best chicken you'll taste in the country. I guarantee you. But it's also with that comes a hefty price of course. tag. Uh, yeah, of course. The more stuff you do to the chicken, the more it costs. It it's, is. It's the type of chicken that we love, but we could never afford. If it. they donate so. one to the Matt Townsend show, I will gladly. Make you it try and it? try oh, it. I, I yes. roast it in so a minute, you, sure. You'd try it for free. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Sadie. Uh, now I'm salivating, not because of chickens. the free-range chickens or eggs, but because of the croissant toast. You need to try a morning bun. Morning bun? That, these are, it's an actual <laughs> recipe, It's it's been, but it's it's basically the cr- a cross between kind of a croissant and a cinnamon roll. Mm. It also sounds like a disorder. Mm. Morning bun. I've got morning bun. Mm-hmm. Um, My daughters have that when they when they go to school in the morning after they put their hair up. Morning I've bun. got it from sitting in this chair for three hours straight. Could so, be. <laughs> so Terry, you gave a fantastic tease at, during one of the the blocks of the show, and I want to turn it over to you to to fulfill. Just you you can't leave us in suspense. Tell us what this is all about. Well, what is the longest flight you've ever taken? I flew to Japan once. How long was that? Uh, well, actually, when we flew home, we we left uh, on one day at at a time, and we landed on the same day at the same time right. in in California. So from Japan so to California is how long? It, it's uh, probably seven or eight hours. Seven or eight hours. Okay. I've been to China and Russia, but you know that's broken up with a long, bunch of other. The longest flights. leg. How's the for like what ten hours? Probably from New York to Moscow. Is, yeah, that's got to be at least uh, at 10 hours, around 10 hours, yeah. Okay. Well, apparently, it says if you're looking to rack up thousands and thousands of air miles and one's fell swoop, you might consider Air India's nonstop flight from Delhi to San Francisco. 870 miles longer than the route that has changed. Uh, they changed the, to fly across the Pacific rather than across the Atlantic, right? Well, they, they do realize that there are delis in San Francisco, so you don't have this to. This would be more like New Delhi. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for um, clarifying that. So it says, by changing the route, the flight is now the longest in the world at 9,506 miles. Which equates to? We'll see here in a second. Okay. It surpasses the Emirates-Dubai to Auckland route, which had been the former record holder. But Air India didn't change their route just to get but the title by flying over the Pacific. The planes knock off two hours off the flight by taking advantage of the jet stream. So they moved the, the flight. Okay. So it was a little faster, but it made it longer, if that makes any sense. Luckily, they, they can fly faster but it still with goes the jet faster. stream. So it says, unfortunately, you're still on the plane for 14 and a half hours. Oh. The aircraft took off from Delhi at 4 a.m. Sunday, October 16th. We were uh, in that date until Japan, then you hit the international date line. Yep. And uh, then they landed in San Francisco October 15th or – no, wait. So they took – this is so confusing with the yes, international date line. So they took off 4 a.m. Sunday, October 16th, right? Yep. They landed – that was in India. They landed in San Francisco 6.30 a.m. October 16th. What? Yeah, so you, you take off mm-hmm. on October 16th at 4 a.m. So it's only a two-and-a-half-hour flight. Well, if you're looking at it that way. Well, but you look at it that way. But there's 14 hours of flight to land two hours apart from each other on a clock. 
Do you know if they're working on any strategies to lessen the time? Are they going to no. – could they like throw out some luggage during the they flight could. to lighten the load maybe? They could. It says Air India won't hold the record for long though. An even lengthier flight has been proposed by Singapore Airlines, a Singapore to New York route that would run 10,000 miles and last 18 or 19 hours. Wow. Okay. I know that's uh, long. 19 hours on a plane is just ridiculous. Yeah. I know that's long, 14 and a half hours, but if you were a traveler and you were trying to get to New Delhi and you knew that you were going to have to stop in New York and all these mm-hmm. other places, Arizona, everything stops in Arizona, it seems. Wouldn't you prefer just the one really long leg of the flight than having to stop in all those different cities before you get to your final destination? <sighs> If I had enough sleeping pills just to kind of knock me out to just if eat I up had time a bed, or something. If I had a bed to sleep in, if right. I, you know, if if they had accommodations on the planes, I mean, that's why I, do, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't mind flying in the Emirates plane because, mm-hmm. you know, Jennifer Aniston will be there too. Right. Absolutely. Oh. That's what and the commercials say. Exactly. She goes on all the flights. She's there's, always up in the air. <laughs> and there's video games apparently. The kid's playing video games exactly, right there in front yeah. of you. So there's so, plenty to but do. But no, if there is a bed, one of those bed seats okay. that I, and I could afford that, Sure. So basically, if you could have some kind of an inception type experience, mm. no, they, they actually have to these. a wire. These okay, <laughs> all right. Wow. So those are really long flights. Wow. I don't know if you really need to get to your. You know, if you're in India and you really need to get to San Francisco, there's an option, but it's it's fourteen and a half hours. I, if there's a businessman who needs it, I can Absolutely. understand it. Yeah. Well, speaking of two and a half hours, because you mentioned this is really only a two and a half hour flight, mm-hmm. uh, what we've been doing here for the past week and a half or so on the Matt Townsend Show is we've been going over my picks for the 12 days of Halloween movies. And uh, for the next few days, we're not going to have anything that's pre-produced, so we'll just spend a couple of minutes revealing, or we won't take two minutes to reveal what it is. We'll talk about it for a couple of minutes. And I know that Sean O'Neill has seen this movie, and he Mm -hmm. also enjoys it. But uh, imagine you were driving in a car, and you get in an accident. You black out, and you wake up tied or secured by a, a chain to the wall of somebody's basement. Exactly. And you have the beginning of my next pick, which is... 10 Cloverfield Lane. 10 Cloverfield Lane. But not only are you tied to the wall, you have you have a splint on your leg, hmm. and you have no idea how it got there. That is that is that makes for a great setup for this movie. And uh it really kind of explores uh our fears of the unknown. Oh, definitely. But also, what we see in front of us may not be all that it seems. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yes. So she wakes up. Uh, this man comes in who is played by John Goodman. One of the – this is like John Goodman like you've never seen him. John Goodman should have got an Oscar nomination for this movie in my opinion. He still can because it came out in March. So March of this year. No. Yeah. It came out last year. No, 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 no. So he so he'll still be considered um usually the movies that come out earlier in the year have a tougher time of getting yes, the that Oscar is nomination, true. but uh anyway, so he comes into this cell that he's put her in and he he presents himself as pretty much her savior. I saved you from this accident, and I can't allow you to go out of this bunker that we're all in because there's this terrible virus yep. that has killed everybody. And if we go out there, we're going to be infected by this virus. So I'm your savior. I saved your life. You should be thanking me. And yet, 
we spend the movie not knowing, is this guy completely off his rocker or is he right? Is there something going on outside that would kill the people in this bunker? And there are clues along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the the lady, she tries to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, but then somebody comes up to the door of the bunker as she's trying to escape. And they look like they're crazy. And all of a sudden, and they she's... may be. You don't. You don't ever. You don't ever find out yeah. if they are or not. And so there are a bunch of twists like that. She kind of goes back and forth. Oh, maybe there's something to what this John Goodman character is saying. Exactly. Creepy, creepy movie. But it's it's not it's not scary. It's just yes. a good uh, a good suspenseful movie that would you know you'd probably. Um, Compare it to something like Wait Until Dark. It's not going to give you nightmares, but it's just a good Mm -hmm. suspenseful movie. Uh, And there is a reveal at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. You do find out, you know, what's going on. And it is – it's – but John Goodman, if you've never seen John Goodman, uh, I mean, yes, he was great as Sully or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Monsters, Inc. (laughs) and all those movies. And he was fantastic on Roseanne. But I seriously, this is his – this was a masterpiece by him. He he delved into this character and just – he made this character. Absolutely. So, yeah, if you're looking for the John Goodman of Monsters, Inc. or Roseanne, oh. you may not <laughs> like his portrayal of this character in this movie. Uh, I loved it. But, but <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking for something along the lines of an Alfred Hitchcock thriller or Wait Until Dark, go and see this movie. You can rent it. And uh, you won't be sorry. It is fantastic. Now, there is the caveat of it does have a tie-in to the movie, to an earlier movie called Cloverfield, even though this movie without Cloverfield could have stood on its own. It can stand on its own. Yeah. Yeah. So go out and see this movie. uh, Entertaining. John Goodman at his best. We're going to go to a quick break here. When we come back, we are going to be talking to our health evangelist, Uh, Health evangelist Ron Hager, who we like to bring on the program every couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about diets when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, if you've been listening to the show for the past few weeks anyway, when that song was first introduced as the theme song for our next guest, then you know that it is Dr. Ron Hager, who's back with us again here today. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life and Sci- Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. His area of expertise is chronic disease prevention. Dr. Ron, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So... Now, uh, it's interesting. The, uh, yesterday, we had a guest that was talking about, uh, obviously, we know there are a lot of physical benefits from exercising and not just physical benefits, but emotional and mental benefits as sure, well. Sure. So that's kind of the exercise part of our health. You're going to talk to us more about the the diet portion of our health. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's not that one is, you know... It, it's not that either one of these things are mutually exclusive. Right. I, I want to make that clear because I know people who say, you know, who exercise regularly, and I'll say, you know, why do you exercise regularly? And the things you mentioned, you know, are the correct answer. Like, 
you know, well, it helps reduce my risk of disease, it improves my health, it improves my mental state, it preserves neurons, you know, whatever. Uh, but some people I've actually talked to say, I exercise regularly so I can eat whatever I want. Mm. And then there are other people who say, you know, they, they have a very strict diet. It, it, they, you know, they're, they're sort of principle-based in their eating, you know, they eat correctly. And I say, why are you so good at, at eating well? And they say, well, because if I eat well, I don't have to exercise. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, people like that, I think, are just sort of looking for excuses. Uh, and, but but that doesn't work. You know, you yeah. can uh, you can exercise, uh, and then you know if you say I want to eat whatever I want and it's not the right things, uh, you're kind of undoing, you know, what you did, you know, through the exercise and vice versa with the healthy diet. So a person is a whole person, right? And and everything impacts the whole person. So you can't you can't say well I. You know, if I exercise, that covers my whole person and it doesn't matter what I eat. Right. Because everything has a consequence. You know, all the choices that you make. So of the two people that you mentioned, I am more like the first one, you know, exercise. I exercise so I don't – or so I can eat what I want. Uh, but then I don't exercise. So yeah. Yeah, I, take, <laughs> yeah. I take away that part of the equation. Yeah. Well, another interesting thought on this is – You know, a lot of people say they exercise so they can eat as much as they want. The assumption Mm -hmm. is that, you know, if I burn these calories, you know, through exercise, it allows me to consume more calories. But, you know, if you think about that, even just from a a mathematical perspective, you'll see that uh, that that doesn't really uh, play out in in a person's favor because – you know, you think about how much exercise it takes to burn X amount of calories. And uh, it is known that, for example – now, this is a very general – uh, statement, but it takes about a hundred calories uh, to run a mile, uh, mm. and it takes about a hundred calories to walk a mile too. It's just you know how many calories in a given amount of time you're burning. Obviously, if you run, you're you're burning those calories faster right. than if you walk. But let's just stick with about a hundred calories to cover a mile distance. So if you went five miles, that you know walking, running, or whatever, you would say you burned about five hundred calories. How long, from a dietary perspective, would it take you to offset that 500-calorie expenditure? Mm. You could do it in about two minutes, you know, uh, eating, you know, one double cheeseburger or something like that, yep. and you're done. You know, so, so that, that, that rationale, that type of thinking doesn't really work either to say, you know, I exercise so I can, you know, eat, eat you know, overeat. But now what about some of the healthier foods, like just eating as many vegetables as you want and, and other foods that don't have as many calories in them? Now, now, yeah, that, that, that's just fine, but uh, that's not generally what people do, right? <laughs> Doesn't that kind of... <laughs> they're, they're, they're looking for rationales to, sure. to, to really eat the things they know aren't that good for them. And if you yeah. ask them, if you say, you know, is that... Do you really feel like that double cheeseburger is doing you any good? No, I know it's not doing me any good, but I exercised for five, you know for an hour today, so I, just so I could eat this. So you got to be careful with kind of how you think about things. And some of this, you know, actually comes from you know media and advertising, and yeah. you know they make things out. I mean, you see an advertisement for a fast food restaurant, and nothing they say has anything to do with the food. It has to do with you know the kind of person you want to be yeah. if you eat this food. You know, you can be sexy, or you can be strong, or you can be uh, accepted or, you know, th- th- this is the kind of marketing you see all the time now. Even in the automobile industry, you see an advertisement for a car and nothing is ever, ever even said about the quality or features of the car. Yeah, It's just about if you want to protect your family, you know, or if you want to treat your family right, or if you want to be like your neighbors or, 
you know. So I would think that tricky. even even the mentality of eating as many healthy foods as you want, even that could potentially be dangerous because what happens if you know you have a lapse or you know you uh, decide, oh, it's Christmas, so I'm going to start eating these, and you're, <laughs> yeah. you're on that mentality of I can eat whatever I want and as much as I want because I'm exercising. Right. Wow. Yeah. So another a question I wanted to ask you is. I think for a lot of people, the word diet is kind of a buzzword because you hear diet and you think, well, a diet, diet doesn't work. Yeah. Well, diet can be defined in at least a couple different ways. Diet can be just what you eat, Mm -hmm. you know, your dietary intake. And, you know, that could be any variety of or combinations of, of foods. But for most people, the word diet usually implies or infers some kind of a program that involves calorie restriction, usually. And and most commonly now, the word diet, you know, has to do with things like a, a certain brand or type of approach, like paleo diet or low-carb diet, uh, you know. And and that's that's unfortunate because those things don't work. You know, there is no real good uh, long-term or even short-term evidence, to be honest, uh, that shows that any of these things work. And, I mean, all you have to do is look at the state of affairs, right? I mean, if if any single diet in terms of a, a specified approach really worked, uh, 70% of our population would not be overweight or obese, right? And, and it wouldn't be continuing to go up. It would actually be going down. Right. If there was a if, – if any one of these things was an honest-to-goodness real solution – why wouldn't everybody be doing it? They're constantly changing, and you know, there's always new research that comes up. Yeah. It's funny. Are you familiar with the comedian Jim Gaffigan? Oh yeah, <laughs> he's got a he's got a bit on milk. You know, oh, don't drink cow's milk. You should drink this almond milk. And yeah. then it becomes, don't drink almond milk. You got to drink this rice milk. <laughs> and then it comes full circle. Oh, you should drink cow's milk. It's big in Europe. Yeah. So <laughs> you know what I tell my students, and what I try and uh, do with it when I work with people, or even in my own life is I, I try and stick with three words, balance, variety, and moderation. You know, is too much of any kind of something probably not good for Yeah, you know, that, that, that's the case. But again, a lot of people get stuck on this. You know, we just, I was just talking in my class uh, yesterday about fruits and vegetables and, and which ones are the best for you in terms of fighting cancer and, and uh, cardiovascular disease. And so studies have been done on, on whole foods, not, not the supplements or the compounds that come out of the foods, but on whole foods. And for example, it was, it, it's known that cranberries uh, have uh, the highest antioxidant capacity, and they also have the highest antiproliferative effect on liver cancer cells. So in other words, uh, cranberries are, are, can be really good for you. But does that mean, you know, that, that's it, and that's all I'm going to eat, cranberries. Yeah. Cranberries for breakfast, cranberries for lunch, and cranberries for dinner. Well, this is sort of um, a mindset that people get into is they, they're looking for a magic bullet, and then they kind of latch onto it and almost become fanatical about it, and so everything has to be cranberries now. But that's not how it works. You know, uh, We're supposed to, first of all, enjoy the foods we eat. I mean, that's, that's got to be a critical piece, right? Uh, that's one of the reasons diet you know, these weight loss diets don't work is because people can't stick with them for very long. They can do it for a while, but not typically very long. So you got to be careful, you know, not to get, you know, just stuck on one thing as some, as as if it's going to cure every ailment, uh, because it just doesn't work like that. So, so 
you know, balance, variety, and moderation. To me, that, that explains a lot. You know, is, is milk a deadly poison? No. You know, is, but, if all, but if you drank two gallons a day, that probably wouldn't be best for your health. And by the way, speaking of cranberries, one of the hardest things to find in the grocery store, <laughs> unless you're in the juice section, because it's in everything in the, in the juice section, right? Yeah, yeah, but that, but that's not probably you know the best thing. Um, you know, I want to talk in just a little bit about some things a person can do, uh, kind of a little trick or a little gimmick, I guess you could say, that might help people uh, become aware, more aware of what they're eating. But it's almost like a game you can play. It's related to money, so a lot of people might be interested in it. But it's a little tactic that, that people can try uh, that, might, that, that they might find helpful. All right. We will get to that game, that tactic. When we come back, we are speaking with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. And when we come back, we're going to have some fun and uh, learn more about what we can do to improve our health by uh, changing our mindsets and developing good, healthy diets. I'm ready and hoping for a miracle as we speak here with Dr. Ron Hager, who has been talking to us about diets and uh, some of the changes that have that have gone on. And before the commercial break, you left us with a great tease, and I want to turn it back over to you to to fulfill that to fulfill that, so we don't have to sit here in suspense anymore. Okay, all right. So this is uh, something that's actually an assignment that I use in my classes. But as I've worked with people, I've given them this assignment too. Uh, everybody's kind of familiar with, you know, a bank account. And obviously, uh, you know, the more money you have in your bank account, the better you feel about, you know, your financial status, I guess, or maybe your financial health, if you want to call it that. And if your bank account gets too low, especially if it's zero, or maybe you have an overdraft account, you know, you can actually be in a negative balance. You know, that, that that's a source of stress. You know, you're not feeling too good about that. Uh, so I kind of uh, wanted to tie those things together, you know, this idea of a bank account with helping people to eat better. So there's three things uh, that I uh, get people to kind of generalize in their mind or think about. Uh, one is called Frankenfats or sometimes Frankenstein fats. Now, this is primarily referring to trans fats, which, by the way, the FDA just recently put a ban on, which is good. Mm, it's about time. Yeah. It's been about 20 years in, the, in coming. Um, uh, now, the, that, that doesn't mean that you, know, you never have to worry about consuming trans fats. They're still, they, they still can be in the foods that you eat. Uh, uh, so you still have to be careful. We can, uh, you know, talk about that another time. So the idea is Frankenstein fats, avoid them. Now, this is going to require you to read some labels because it might say zero grams of trans fat uh, on the label or even on the packaging in order to entice you, you know, to say, oh, this is healthy. Mm-hmm. But you have to actually read the ingredients because if it says partially hydrogenated anything, that is actually trans fat. And the reason this this can be done is because the rule is as long as it has a uh, less than a half a gram per serving, it can be called trans fat free. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a little bit uh, deceitful if you ask me. But uh, but anyway, avoid trans fats and avoid cardboard carbohydrates. Now, what is a cardboard carbohydrate? Well, it's essentially the kinds of foods you eat that come in packages. So if you're eating foods out of boxes, bags, cans, bottles, jars, there's a there's a certain amount probably of refinement and processing that have gone on. And cardboard carbohydrates specifically refer to uh, those kinds of things that have a lot of added sugar uh, or they've been overly refined and processed, uh, like like different kinds of bread. You can have whole grain, whole wheat bread. 
and you can have you know just a regular loaf of white bread. One is very, very refined, and the other one is not. So these cardboard carbohydrates, uh, staying away from simple carbohydrates and trying to eat more whole foods. So obviously this is going to you know, turn a person more towards things like fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So that, that's the effort there. And then the third thing is to uh, limit or maybe even try eliminating uh, drinking anything with calories in it. Do not ever drink your calories. Now, a, a great explanation for that, or at least a rationale, would be to consider something like uh, orange juice versus eating an orange. Hmm. Okay, so if you were to uh, drink one eight-ounce glass of orange juice... Had one this morning. Yeah, it, it's going to have uh, two and a half times the sugar, but only one-third the fiber of a typical wow. orange. Uh, um, an apple, uh, for example, uh, has about 95 calories. So that's just one apple, 95 calories. But eight ounces of apple juice is 113 calories. So, you know, do you get more from – now you might say, well, 95, 113, we're only, you know, talking about a small number of extra calories. But you're also not getting all the other things that come from eating the apple, the fiber and, and many other of the chemicals that are contained in the whole whole food. If we go back to orange, uh, oranges and orange juice uh, – uh, one, one orange is about 45 calories, uh, but an 8-ounce glass of orange juice is 111, so a little bit more of a discrepancy there. But then ask yourself, which one would make you feel more full, eating the apple or drinking 8 ounces of orange juice? So what I'm, the, the point I'm trying to make is it can be really easy to you know, take in extra calories, to overconsume calories if you're drinking them. Right. So, so try and stay and, – and then – so then people might say, well, yeah, but that, that's exactly why I drink, you know, diet Dr. Pepper or whatever <laughs> because it's zero calories. Uh, but you've got to understand too that there's a lot of chemicals including artificial sweeteners right. uh, that are in those and uh, there, there may be some health implications, you know, for that as well, you know, outside of just calories. So here's what you do. So you, 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 you try and follow that guideline. Avoid Frankenstein fats, avoid cardboard carbohydrates, and avoid drinking your calories. And then you just arbitrarily set up an imaginary bank account. I mean, maybe you could do it on your phone or something, but you might just do it in your mind. And let's say you start with a balance every day of $5. And then as you go throughout the day, if you find yourself, and now just being honest with yourself is critical here. If you find yourself eating or drinking something that you know you probably shouldn't be doing or that there's a better option, you know, but you're just not doing it, then you withdraw a dollar from your bank account. Now, if you're doing that with $5 and a dollar each time you do something you shouldn't do, you know, you've only got five opportunities during the day before you're down to a zero balance. And if you go beyond that, you might end up, you know, minus $2 in the hole or something. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to set this up so it'll work for you. And it might be different for everybody. Maybe you need $10. You know, maybe, maybe you know that, you know, $5 isn't going to get you very far. So maybe start with $10 then. And then as you get better at it, then you can work on it over time and maybe start with a $5 balance after you've worked on it with a $10 balance. Uh, and maybe even reward yourself. So you could say, I'm going to start with a $5 balance, but when I make choices to eat the things I know I should, I'm going to deposit a dollar. Ah, that's can great. Kind of, then you kind of see where you end up at the end of a day. And a lot of people relate you know, to a bank account and to finances. So this might just be a way to help them become aware. See, a lot of people aren't aware. They, they don't realize how quickly they might get to a zero balance if they didn't do this. 
You know, and, and so self-awareness, what I've discovered is self-awareness when it comes to eating is a huge thing. A lot of times people don't even know that they're, that they're eating so much of the things they shouldn't be eating. And this is maybe a little trick or a, a little gimmick they can use to just help them become aware. Well, Dr. Ron, thank you so much for sharing that. It's, it is good to, to try something like that that is a little more – it gives people a better image. And, you know, obviously recording what they're, what they're eating throughout the day is going to help them yeah. see just how, just how poorly they're eating or hopefully how, uh, how healthy they're eating. So everybody, if you're listening out there, make sure that you go out and you come up with a, a dietary bank account and – Add more money as you eat healthier foods and and take away money as you eat the less healthy foods. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. And again, uh, Dr. Ron, thank you so much for being on the program. Pleasure, Jeff. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier, happier, and uh, hopefully better lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with Dr. Ron Hager, who uh, encouraged us to open up a dietary bank account and watch the things that we're putting in our bodies. We, right now, are going to head on over to BYU Sports Nation to talk to Spencer and Jerem, who are our good brethren over there who put on a good program every weekday. Spencer and Jerem, how are you doing today? Fantastic, Jeff. Good. This is it's great to meet you over the air, man. Yes, and you know I've got some really interesting things that I want to talk to you guys about, um, and we'll get to what's going to be on your show. But just first and foremost, are you watching Game One tonight? And if so, who are you rooting for? Yes, the Cubs. Yeah, you, I, it just you got to end the, the curse of the Billy Goat and the drought, man. Here's the thing: I, I've been thinking about this. The Cubs' identity has been that they haven't won, right? That's who they are. The lovable losers. The story would actually be better if they lost. Because they got back to the World (laughs) Series. Check, right? That was the first step. The second step is winning. Once they win, then what? Like, it changes the franchise. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying the story would continue to be compelling. It ceases to be compelling once they win. Well, are the Red Sox compelling anymore? Yeah, once, that... the, a couple of years after, it was not the same deal with them. Then they won again, right? And, that, yeah, it's the last great American sports story that hasn't okay. been told. So I would agree with you to a certain, a certain point. I think what would make an, a more interesting story is if they found some kind of a loophole or they went back and they looked at the Dodgers and Cubs games and found out that the Cubs actually didn't score that many runs and that the Dodgers are actually supposed to be in the World Series. Are you a Dodgers fan, I take Jeff? it you like the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah. Well, think about it with the Cavs. There, there's no pressure, and, it's, and it was amazing that they won, right? And, of course, it would be if the Cubs win. But, like, in the next couple of years... Hmm. It's not the same story with the Cavs. Like the angst, the buildup, the Cleveland. You know what I mean? It's, I'm not. That's like alternative number two of compelling. But number one would be they win. Yeah, it's I'm amazing. just saying it would be interesting. It's amazing the Cubs got to the World Series for the first time since World War Two. Wow. Yeah, I'm just hoping that we'll see either Charlie Sheen at the World Series or Daniel Stern in character. <laughs> 
ready to throw out the first pitch, even though they told them no. Yeah. Yes, please. Let's bring out Ricky Wild Thing Vaughn. Like Bartman should be on the uh, on the, in the parade if they win. Like <laughs> they could have all kinds of fun with this. Okay, so uh, here's something else that's interesting. I, I want to ask you guys: What is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Ooh, probably Samoas. the. Oh man, those that the Samoas are the ones with coconut in them, right? Yes. Yeah, hard to argue against that. I like the thin mints too. I think those are delicious. Okay. What about the tagalongs? Do you guys like tagalongs? Are those the peanut butter chocolate? Yes. Ones? Those are okay. Yeah. Once Keebler good. started competing, I stopped buying the actual Girl Scout cookies. Because I'm right when I was there a with teenager, you. We would find uh, you know Mrs. Anderson in our area, and we would do any charitable act we could, not out of charity, but to get Girl Scout. Cookies. So she'd give us some of the boxes instead of supporting the girl the Girl Scouts by uh, spending five dollars a box. You're going to spend two dollars at Walmart on the Keebler Elf cookies. I'm a Weeblos leader, and I don't even <laughs> contribute to Boy Scouts. <laughs> so that, you know, that tells you everything you need to know. I, I'm not trying to bring you down because I I do the very same thing. But anyway, the reason I bring this up, <laughs> maybe you want to guess. And I only say that because I'm, I'm sure you'll guess the wrong National why I'm bringing up Girl Scout Cookie Day. <laughs> no, no, I tricked you. They're actually coming out with a limited edition Girl Scout cookie cereal. Oh, would you buy that? No. Well, what? What? Cookie, no. What flavor? So the two that they're gonna they're gonna try out are Thin Mints, of okay. course, okay. and Caramel Crunch or caramel Car- Do you crunch. say caramel or caramel? Like- I Car- say caramel. Caramel. Yeah. Pirates me too. of the Caribbean, Caribbean. <laughs> as well. I the, the, who do you have you eaten mint for breakfast like in a cereal before? No. Caramel? I have not. But that sounds weird to me. Well, I mean if you like Samoas, mint. Mm, yeah. I've like tried those flavors in ice cream. Crunch. Yeah, the, the peanut butter chocolate flavor I could do because I was like, yeah, Reese's puffs, yes, right? Yes. There's mm. a precedent there. Because it's hard to branch out to n- kind of new cereals, right? Huh. Especially well, at uh, this this uh, fine age we're at. So just make sure when they come out, buy as many boxes as you can and then put them out on eBay so you can get a ton of money. That was our plan. <laughs> yeah. Great. You told everybody uh, our plan. And then I also want to encourage you both to uh, be a punk for the day and to enjoy a plate Check. of pasta. National pasta. Un- none check. Okay. And also to be sour because it's sourest day. I love sour stuff. Yeah. I have a kind of sour personality, so we're good. Atomic Warheads? Those are good. Yeah. 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 Hey, Shock oh, Tarts. They rebranded. I can't remember the name of the new one. Before we get to what's on your program for today, I wanted to ask you about this award that Kainakua is up for. Can you tell us anything about that? The Jim Thorpe Award? Yes. The greatest defensive back in all of America. He's one of 16 finalists. He's tied for first in the nation with five interceptions. Uh, Kai, he's just he's doing what he did last year, and uh, people are starting to take notice. So pretty cool that he is uh, one of the semifinalists on that watch, uh, the, the award watch list, if you will. Are you going to be talking about that on the program, or what will you be talking about? We, we have so many things to talk about, we are not. We actually brought it up. Yesterday. yesterday, yeah. What? But, yeah. Oh, boy. But, but we're talking about it now with you. <laughs> Today's show, we're going to talk about, okay, uh, BYU's 4-4, four and four, how have your mid-season, ex- how have your expectations changed, if at all? Hmm. At 4-4, four and four, uh, that way we'll discuss kind of what we thought, what we think, and what 
could be, you know, with the rest of the season. You're always 500. You know, yesterday it was like, how do you feel about four and four? Today we're like, okay, how have your expectations changed? Hmm. I'm predicting that they're going to win another game or lose another game by one to three points. I am predicting they will not. See, I don't think that's going to happen in the next four plus bowl game. Really? Yeah, I don't but, think that's. But it's happen. happened seven out of the eight games. We think the opponents are different. All right, like like the level of opponent is different. Okay, so Cincinnati that could be a close game. The bowl game, depending on the matchup, that could be. UMass will not be close. They're one and seven. Southern Utah will not be close. That's an FCS. Team. If Utah State Utah is St- close, then that's a serious problem. And Utah State's three and four. And this is coming, of course, from a four and four BYU team, but. It's a team that, of course, has lost four games by eight points. I, I think that BYU fans feel like this team should be 5-3 and three or 6-2. and two. Uh, And so Utah, like Utah State, not a super threat, although that game can be interesting. But no game this week. No game this week? But there's hoops, Jeffrey. Ooh. Tomorrow night, the Cougar tip-off on uh, the BYU TV app. Hey, hey. BYUtv.org. And BYU Radio, of course. Is there an exhibition on Saturday, And an too? exhibition on Saturday. There you go. It's, it's hoops week, too. Let's Excellent. Go. It never ends. Oh, and volleyball has a top 20 matchup on Friday night on yeah. BYU TV and yep. BYU Radio. Oh. That they do. They host it never the ends. five team in America. And we love it. Mm-hmm. So plenty of good games to choose from this weekend. Spencer and Jerem, thank you so much for your time and your talents, and we look forward to listening and watching your show uh, just in a few minutes here. You got it. Thanks. Okay, break a leg. Ah, love those guys. Wow. So, yeah. Plenty of games to choose from this weekend, whether it's baseball, basketball, or volleyball. And if you happen to live in Utah County, then you can watch those games. Yeah. So uh, there's one quick story I want to share with you before we get to the hero of the day story. Uh, It's a twisted crime. Someone stole the Pretzel Chef trailer a food truck that operates in Fairbanks, Alaska. I love the pun. The Pretzel Chef is a fixture at summer events selling pretzels in various flavors, including a pizza pretzel. The owner says that the white 14-foot trailer has been parked for the winter. It has a concession window taking up most of one side and inside two ovens, cheese pumps, a cooler, and a cash register. So if you see a pretzel mobile driving around there, uh, outside of stopping it and asking for a pretzel, you might want to stop it and call the police because it's stolen. Oh, see, all that does is make me hungry for a nice warm pretzel. So go to Walmart. In Fairbanks, Alaska, they just stole it to keep warm. Yeah, probably. That's a good point. So uh, if you're near a Walmart today or uh, if you happen to have some nice warm pretzels, then enjoy and think of the pretzel mobile that is still at large out there somewhere. So as you know, we like to wrap up the show with our hero story of the day. And today's a great one as well. A Polk County Sheriff's deputy was getting some love online after helping out a couple having trouble with a crying baby while trying to eat dinner at a local restaurant. On its Facebook page, the Polk County Sheriff's Office posted a photo of Deputy Chris Bracken holding the baby, saying apparently the other person with no hair in the photo was keeping his parents from enjoying their meal. Bracken was eating at the restaurant Saturday night when he noticed the couple and stepped up to help. Seeing he could offer his help, Deputy Bracken asked if he could distract the little one while Mom and Dad finished their meal uninterrupted, the sheriff's office said. It worked, and Mom and Dad were very grateful for the break. 
The reaction online was one of full adulation for the deputy. Above and beyond, and such a caring officer, one person commented. You know, this is such a great example of a small act of kindness that each and every one of us can and ought to look for. You know, we see it when we're on an airplane and a couple who is would rather probably rather not travel with their little one is having a really tough time with them, just screaming their eyes out. They're scared. They don't know where they are. You can be a hero to that person by just picking up that child or just entertaining them in some way. There are so many small acts of service that we can do on a daily basis that will make a world of difference for people like this couple who are just trying to enjoy a meal or who just need a moment's rest from a child that may have been screaming for for hours. So look for those opportunities. They do exist. And as you look for them, you'll become a better person and you'll be a hero to these types of people. Well, that'll wrap it up for today's episode of the Matt Townsend Show. Make sure to check us out tomorrow. We are on, we are on Sirius XM Radio. You can look at our check us out on uh, BYU Radio, and uh, it's a podcast after the show if you can't catch it live. Until tomorrow, make sure to be a hero to somebody. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back tomorrow, where we will help you to hopefully live healthier, happier, and more heroic lives. We'll see you then.